Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. Today's show going to be a hybrid. I'm going to cover a little news in the front, but the uh, sole purpose is to recap one of the favorite TV shows I've ever watched, and it was The Leftovers. It just completed last Sunday, and I talked about it on the show, but I've never really done a full review, and I wanted to do that now because, uh, like I said, it's one of my favorites. And we'll end with the news and social media nuggets. So it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, we're approaching that 5,000 listens. Um, <clears throat> summer comes and we've kind of slowed down on our uh, listening. And I've done less podcasts because I've been like super busy. Um, but we're, we're doggone close to the total, which is pretty cool. And I wanted to give a shout out to listeners. Um, I looked the other day and there was a lot of Europe on there, which I thought was pretty doggone cool. And for the first time, South Africa. Wow. South Africa listened to the show. And I want to say hello, South Africa, whoever that is, because I once again I don't have stats to show me um, who it is. But wow, I'm honored you listen to my podcast, and I hope you continue to listen to it. Um, we are eight listens off five thousand, so our next podcast, which will probably be uh, Friday, I will uh, hit that benchmark and talk about it because that's pretty cool. So. We always, in our tradition, talk about old stuff, and I want to just hit, uh, after everything we just talked about with London and Manchester, Notre Dame attacker shouted that he was a soldier of ISIL as he attempted to strike police officer with hammer. I'm not going to stop talking about it, because folks, if you think we don't have a problem with immigration from the Middle East, and you want everybody to come into your country... Expect to deal with some assholes. Reza Aslan once called on CNN to fire this asshole over unsavory remarks. We're still coming back that he doesn't talk that way. Um, he's not a CNN employee, even though he works for him. is dealing with the fallout from Trump's a piece of shit. But since he doesn't work for CNN, even though he do, kind of does, he probably doesn't have a worry too much about losing his hosting gig. But not so long ago, he's calling on his non-employer employer to fire someone else over questionable remarks. Matthew Gertz, fire this asshole now. Lewinowski, for all we know, Hillary Clinton was saying the same thing in Wall Street speeches. So, of course, he was an asshole. And <clears throat> he wanted him fired. So finally, after literally the media did not cover, sponsors left, CNN, breaking, CNN axes Reza Aslan for firing off disgusting anti-Trump tweets. CNN has decided to not move forward with production on the acquired series Believer with Reza Aslan. The network said in a statement, we wish Reza and his production team all the best. Yeah. So finally, 
They did the right thing. And that's two in a row that we've actually started to see. Conservatives can play that game too. Conservatives can play the same game. On our climate change, CNBC's Joe Kernan says climate change is wealth redistribution scheme. Squawk Box co-host Joe Kernan, I think that's his name, or Kernan, it's Kernan, I believe, because he's got a knee, condemned climate change as a socialist global wealth redistribution scheme. Kernan shared a story exposing the UN unstability Sustainability, excuse me, advisor Jeffrey Sachs accused President Donald Trump of psychopathic behavior for withdrawing from the Paris Accord. Sachs posted on an op-ed for Project Syndicate arguing the next human-caused climate disaster should be named Typhoon Donald, Superstorm Ivanka, and Mega Flood Jared because of the corruption and viciousness of those surrounding him, Trump. Who in the right mind believes this, Kernan tweeted on June 9th. <clears throat> and what does it say about the veracity of C-A-G-W, catastrophic anthropogenic global warming, if Aquilikes call this science and accept as fact. So I'm sure to see by the end of uh, this week when we do another podcast, people will be calling for him to be fired off CNBC. Kissed Kristen Gillibrand, this is going back a couple podcasts. Senator Gillibrand at PDF 17 calling for more transparency in government and independent investigation of election hacking. If we're not helping people, we should go the fuck home, she said, again, on June 9th. So, somehow, some way, Kristen Gillibrand thinks she's going to get her stuff done by saying the word fuck. I have no problem with it, because I say fuck a lot on this show. I try not to. But, folks, if a conservative was going around giving speeches, dropping F-bombs, it would make the nightly news. It doesn't even make a blip. Finally, we got to talk about reality winner. First and foremost, why the hell, what, why, who? But I found an article. There's a lot. Most of them are glowing about what a hero she is. Because, you know, Bradley Manning, who still has male plumbing, or maybe he doesn't. So maybe I'm supposed to call him Chelsea. I don't know. Assage all them. They were heroes, then they were bastards, then they were heroes. It's kind of like Comey, which we're going to go into in depth in a few seconds. So this reality winner, most of the media loves her because it's Trump. You know, if she gives up information on Trump, that's good. So the article goes, what we know about reality winner, before she was accused of mailing classified information to a media outlet, <coughs> reality winner, what a f- stupid name, was a Texas-raised linguist, yoga instructor, and animal lover who regularly took to social media to blast President Donald Trump. The 25-year-old federal contractor now stands charged with leaking information regarding the 2016 Russian military intelligence cyber attack to The Intercept, an online news outlet. Justice Department announced charges Monday against Reality Lay Winner, a contractor with Pluribus International Corps in Augusta, Georgia. She's accused of removing classified material from a government facility and mailing it to a news outlet, according to a federal complaint. She's now being held at a facility in Georgia. Who is she? Well, we already know she's a contractor. She's accused of leaking. We know that. Um, the NSA report dated May 5th provided details on the 2016 Russian cyber attack on U.S. voting software. Though there is no evidence the hack affected any vote. Winter was a linguist in the U.S. Air Force and speaks Pashto, Farsi, 
And Dari, said her mother, so she's already very much aligned, as we've proven in a previous podcast, with um, Islamists. She served a country. She's a veteran. Her stepfather, Gary Davis, told CNN's Anderson Cooper on Tuesday. Because, of course, they're going to bring her on. She's a hero. She's a patriot. And to see her maligned and slandered in the media is very disheartening. Winners served in the Air Force from December 2010-2016. Her rank was Senior Airman. Her last duty title was Cryptological Language Analyst, according to the Air Force. She provided support to missions and received the Air Force Commendation Medal in 2016, which is for members who have distinguished themselves for meritorious achievement and service. What that means is, serve three years. Do not get an Article 15 or any judicial non-judicial or judicial punishment. And guess what? You get a stupid ribbon. She provided over 1,900 hours of enemy intelligent exploitation and assisted in geolocating 120 enemy combatants. She was raised in Kingsville, Texas, and served in the Air Force in Columbia, Maryland. Her mother confirmed she was a federal contractor in Augusta, but did not know the nature of her work. Outside of work, she worked as a yoga instructor. She's just a normal person, her court appointed attorney, Titus Nichols, said. Uh, how did she become a suspect? She's accused of printing the classified intelligence report May 9th and mailing it to a news outlet a few days later. The intercept contacted the NSA and the Office of Director of National Intelligence. The news outlet provided the U.S. government agency copy the documents. And, of course, we already saw that she uh, liked to hate on everybody. So what does her social media reveal? Winner posted under a pseudonym, Sarah Winners but didn't seem concerned with sealing her identity using a photo of herself as a profile picture and posting a selfie in February. Uh, she posted about leaks and regularly took a social media to complain about Trump. One of the, the tweets to show, hashtag election night, well, people suck. So she was very, very political. <clears throat> Though her Twitter activity dropped off significantly after she began working for Pluribus in February on Instagram, where she used the name Realzy, Reelsly, uh, R-E-E-Z-L-I-E, same as her Twitter handle. She mostly posted selfies from a gym or photos of food. Because that's what we all do, and I don't know why we do it. Nobody gives a hell what, what we eat. They just don't care. See how I did not F-bomb there? I said hell. Woo! On Twitter, she followed Edward Snowden, WikiLeaks, several accounts with links to hacking, collective Anonymous and several alt-government agency accounts that became popular after Trump's inauguration. Many of the accounts claimed to be run by agency employees unhappy with Trump. On election night, when it became apparent, she said, people suck. Earlier this year, she took to Twitter to criticize Trump for golfing on the weekends and later called the president an orange fascist. Though she didn't post explicitly about hacking or leaking, she liked and retweeted posts on the topic, including a tweet from Anonymous hinting at hacking Trump's computer, and one about White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer reportedly lacks approach to securing his personal data. In her tweet, in her last tweet, it appears to be from March 5th when she replied to Anonymous Press asking, what happened to the February 20th call for Trump to resign? Her mother said she wasn't especially political and I never praised past leakers such as Snowden. She's never ever given me any kind of indication that she was in favor of that at all. I don't know how to explain it. Winner's attorney, Nichols, told CNN he was unable to confirm that Twitter account was winners. Julian Assange thought she was freaking awesome. Um, they show all these people that, uh, let's read some of it because it's, it's pretty bad. 
<laughs> now in the age of Trump. Uh, GoFundMe campaign's been started. Started. Nichols described his client as a veteran, not a traitor. All the people that opposed her, they showed a bunch of people. And here is a soundbite of CNN, who just loves this girl now. Tonight, new details about the woman being charged in the first criminal leak case under President Trump. A 25-year-old named Reality Winner, who prosecutors say admitted to leaking classified information about a 2016 Russian military intelligence cyber attack, followed Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, as well as other pro-leaking groups on Twitter. And she also shared stories about leaks. And in another, she called President Trump a, quote, orange fascist. She used the pseudonym Sarah Winners, but didn't completely conceal her identity. She used a photo of herself, a real picture, as her profile picture. Out front tonight, Reality Winners attorney Titus Nichols. And Titus, I appreciate your taking the time tonight. Um, you're casting doubt on the government side of the story here. You say your client's not a traitor. You haven't seen any evidence to make you believe uh, she is guilty. But I do want to note that according to the Justice Department, in the statement that they put out, they said your client admitting to, do, to, to doing this. She printed the information. She knew it was classified and that she mailed it to a news outlet. Should she completely admitted everything? Do you not believe the government? Well, Aaron, thank you for having me on the show tonight. Uh, I think the important point, the important thing at this stage is the fact that we're still very new in this case. My client was arrested June 3rd. She had her initial appearance June 5th, and she's scheduled to have her detention hearing on this Thursday. I can't go into the facts of the case just because we're still at a beginning stage. But 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 when they say that she admitted to all of it, I just want to be clear, you are casting doubt on that. My personal opinion as to the press release that the DOJ issued, I really don't think that's relevant to the facts of the case since it's still beginning. We are preparing for our detention hearing and the arguments that we're going to make on my client's behalf in regards to detention hearing so that she can be released pre-trial. So one of the questions people have here is motive, and I just referenced a bit of that in the introduction. Uh, on her Twitter page, uh, it, 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 here's some of the things that your client said. On election night, when it became apparent Trump would win, she tweeted, well, people suck. Hashtag election night. On February 11th, she tweeted, quote, the most dangerous entry to this country was the orange fascist we let into the White House. Uh, it certainly looks like her politics here are very clear. Well, Aaron, that's assuming that that particular Twitter or social media page is my client's. I have not independently verified any of the social media pages that have been res referenced in the that's been going on and been circulated. I mean, as you all know, it's very well possible that anyone can put up anything on the Internet. But specifically, the rules of evidence in federal court have very strict guidelines as for what is and is not admissible. So it's still questionable whether those social media pages would be admissible in this trial. At the end of the day, the most important thing is ensuring that Ms. Winters receives a fair trial. If she is convicted, if she did this, do you think that she deserves to go to jail for years? Because, of course, she could go to jail for up to a decade statutorily. That's correct. According to 18 U.S.C. 793E, she is facing the maximum exposure of 10 years. Now, as her attorney, I can believe something totally different. That's why we're looking forward to having her day in trial where a jury can decide the case. If she did this, why do you think... Um, why do you think she did it, especially given that they're saying she actually emailed the news outlet from her work computer? 
If you look at the statute uh, that I referenced, 793E, it specifically says the government's burden is going to be proving that classified documents were disseminated with a reasonable belief that they would injure the United States or favor a foreign government. According to the statute, that is what the government's going to have to prove. Going into motive at this stage, A, it'd be premature since there were still at the beginning stages, and B, that's not going to be an important part of the statute. Uh, so you're saying she could have done it, but it, they, they'd have to prove that it actually damaged the government. Well, as a former prosecutor, I always focus on what does the evidence show. We can all think whatever we want. We can have our own opinions. But at the end of the day, the government has the burden of proving beyond and a reasonable doubt that she violated the statute. And before we go, what's her state of mind? Is she okay with all of this? Is she well, upset? Aaron, I, I mean, what is she thinking right now? Well, Aaron, I don't think anybody would be okay with being in locked up in federal custody. I mean, this time last week, my client was employed with the company of Augusta. Now she's in custody. So I, I don't think it's accurate to say, is she okay or is she not okay with this? Really, the main thing she's focusing on is making right. sure that her constitutional rights are protected and that she has a fair trial. Right. But I guess part of the reason I say that is if she did it, is she okay with it? Does she feel that this was a patriotic thing to do, that it was worth the price that she might pay? I think that's something the jury's going to have to decide once she has her day in court. All right. Well, Titus, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. And next. Okay, so everybody's allowed their politics. Um, sure, I, I, I think she's just another sheep that hates Trump, but what this girl did should not be lauded on CNN. Snowden shouldn't be lauded. Bradley, Chelsea, very confused on what he is. Manning should be, shouldn't be lauded. Uh, and, and, you know, hey, I may have covered everything under the Hillary shit from Julian Assange, but at the end of the day, he's not a hero. And you never heard me say that. Sure, I enjoyed reading the emails because it was nice to see the inside of the Democrats, which is no different than the doggone um, Republicans. But in your day-to-day media... You, you never hear that, you know, Republicans are bad, Democrats love all the people, and then you hear them call them Taco Bowl. So, I think it's very interesting how in the age of Trump now, CNN's going to cover anybody that hurts Trump is a good person. Um, and as we saw with Bill Maher, you can even call people the N-word, you know, hey, you can get away with that because you hate Trump, so you're on our team, and we like you. So, of course, we have the whole, the Comey, uh, I got some stats on it that's going to, you know, uh, I guess I'm... <laughs> putting the horse in front of the cart or cart in front of the horse or whatever that statement goes. You know, CNN covered it for 10 hours. Before the, the hearing, they had, they had countdown clocks. And then Fox picked it up. And it was like the Super Bowl up in this bitch. It, it really surprised me. But it was all for naught. I mean, when you, you get to it, and, and I'll close with my comments on it, uh, this was a big nothing burger, really. So... I wanted to cover prior Hollywood transfixed by Comey hearing. Ever since former FBI Director James Comey became inexorably linked with the 2016 election, celebrities have been spellbound by him. They loved, hated, sympathized with him, and berated him. But during the congressional hearing that took place Thursday morning, nearly all were by Comey's side. They loved him. Chelsea Handler, Trump announced his new FBI director via Twitter. Can't wait for him to announce his impeachment via Snapchat. Mm-hmm. A pundit Dan Savage expressed similar hopes of presidential ouster, heading up a mountain on overnight hike planning before hashtag Comey Palooza scheduled, he wrote, hoping Trump is impeached and it's all over before I get back. Yeah. 
Others watched with satisfied captivation as the hearing proceeded. Singer Mandy Moore tweeted that the questioning was utterly, utterly fascinating, while actress Mia Farrow simply commented, this whole thing, wow. 22-year-old singer Lord was even transfixed. Only in 2017 would one be launching a tour and watching Comey testify at the same time. George Taki, who we cover all the time, can you imagine Trump testifying under oath? How many counts of perjury would there be within the first hour alone? Morgan J. Freeman, not to be confused with Morgan Freeman, added, Think I smell odor of presidential abuse. Mm, they hope. Captain America actor Chris Evans, I've never wanted Trump to tweet so badly entire life. Pick your phone up. Do it. More to cocky. Trump's intent to endeavor to obstruct justice drips everywhere. Um, obstruction or not, any person who thinks the Trump presidency can ride out and survive this storm... Ellen executive producer Andy Lastner added, many celebs tweeted about the former FBI director's comment. Lordy, I hope that there are tapes, which he made in response to questioning from Feinstein. Uh, President Trump had earlier mentioned that there were tapes. Uh, Josh Gad, based on today's hearing and the way both parties are handling it, we are now living in two different realities. I need Lordy, I hope there are tapes on a t-shirt, Evans added. There already is. McCain, who they found to be incoherent during his questioning, MRC Culture did not see any who tweeted about Comey's suspicion that former Attorney General Loretta Lynch might have favored the Clintons, which we'll cover. Josh Gad weighed in based on today's hearing, blah, blah, blah. We already read it. And it was weird. I mean, this whole thing was weird. Found an article, apparently Comey's homies is a thing in D.C. Comey homie t-shirts. Because now the left loves Comey. Remember, in, in October when he released that letter saying she was back on her investigation, he was the Antichrist. In July, and I'm not going to play because we played it a million times. Every time the tables turn, somehow... Comey becomes a good dude to the left in the media, and then he's a bad dude to the left. So, as we'll see, because they couldn't get what they really wanted, which was that smoking gun, they're, they're clinging to anything, and he's still a good guy. Jennifer Palmieri, who served on the Obama administration as director of communications, and we hate so much, and she was in charge of Hillary's campaign, Tweeted that former FBI Director Comey knows how to use the moment while have something more to say at today's hearing. In other words, Trump's to Trump, he's a showboat. And her tweet goes on that. Chuck Todd did the same thing. Doesn't put it all out there at first. I have a feeling this is an appetizer as far as he's concerned. As for the showboat narrative, it sounds like Team Trump will go that route in response to today's testimony. Newsweek, attack ads will slam Comey as showboat and failure to... Failure on the day of his Trump-Russia testimony. The RNC put out a bunch of stuff. They're talking points. President Trump feels completely and totally vindicated by this because they, there's nothing there. There's just nothing to Russia as much as the left and the media want it. It's just not there. Um, Director Comey opening statement confirms he told Trump three times. It's not an investigation. There are huge pundits on TV shows who said that would backfire on Trump. They they just said that was going to be the facts. Of course, now they're not saying, okay, wow. The testimony also confirms Trump did not impede or engage in obstruction of justice. 
President Trump knew firing Comey would be detrimental to his presidency, but he knew it was the right thing to do for the country. Director Comey lost confidence on both sides of the aisle. Director Comey and his deputy have been admitted under oath. There was no obstruction. Comey has a long history of blatant contradictions and misstatements. And that's pretty much all true from my perspective of what I watched. Philip Rucker got a copy of RNC Trump talking points to fight Comey, distributed to supporters tonight, complete with gifts. Here are the main points, and I just read them. So, as it went on, uh, who came out ahead of the hearing? NBC Chuck Todd saw it this way. Hope folks who see, keep saying it was a good day for X or Y realize that nothing about today was good for anyone, period. That's because he was really upset. Because it was such a nothing burger. Sorry, I'm drinking so much. I just woke up. I'm so thirsty that I, I try to drink before the show and I just can't get enough to drink this morning. Sean Davis tweets like this, or how you could tell, it was a very bad day for Comey. And, and that's the fact. That's the fact right there. It was a bad day for the media. It was a bad day for the left. It wasn't a bad day for Trump. It wasn't. He's already been called a liar forever. So, I mean, it didn't really hurt it. Uh, Claire McCaskill, no question, a dark day for our democracy. Full stop. Because she didn't get what she wanted. So, Comey purportedly opened remarks for tomorrow's hearing are out there for all to see. Let's take a moment to point and laugh at CNN for getting it so spectacularly wrong yesterday. Source, Comey to testify he never told Trump he was not under investigation. Borger is there on the camera. In the context prior to January 6th meeting, I discussed with the FBI's leadership team whether I should be prepared to assure Trump, we were not investigating personally. That was true. We did not have an open counterintelligence case on him. We agreed I should do so if circumstances warranted. During our one-on-one meeting at Trump Tower, based on President-elect Trump's reaction to the briefing and without him directly asking the question, I offered the assurance. Borger said over and over, and so did CNN, and that was their big scoop, that they had him, and it was a lie. But after every Dem tried to get him to say... There is collusion, and there is no fact in that statement. He assured everybody there is no investigation into Trump. It is his personnel. The only linkage you can break between Russia and the Trump campaign is people meeting. And as we've covered on the show a million times, Sessions meeting Russian ambassadors was par for the course during the same time, so did Dems. But you're grabbing for straws, so when you grab for straws, you just make that six degrees of separation and go, Aha! We got him! Alex Griswold, the award for the most ridiculous theory of the day has been handed out already to all the people who suggest the House Oversight Committee released its new report on Operation Fast and Furious Wednesday in an attempt to distract attention from the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing. Never mind that the broadcast networks are all carrying the hearing live. CNN put out a countdown clock 48 hours in advance, and James Comey doesn't even testify until Thursday. Just look at how well the cable outlets are going to wall the wall with the Fast and Furious report. As the circuit was going on, MSDNC's Christopher Hayes teased conservatives with some good news, reminding them that while all eyes were on the Trump, Republicans in the Senate were quietly going to work repealing Obamacare. While a case mounts the President obstruction justice, Senate repeal going to quietly repeal Obamacare 
and no pub with no public scrutiny. That was a lie. That wasn't true. I don't know where he got that, but he was running his own little fake news in the background. And there's numerous times Hayes' his feelings were really hurt on this because he really hates Trump a lot. Another article, this is why voters hate D.C. and the media. They interviewed a dog about Comey. With the Comey hearing about to start, the people watching D.C. are exhibiting the very behavior that the rest of America hates. For example, watch parties of the hearing at D.C. bars. Big Comey testimony watch party at D.C.'s fancy legal bar. The hung jury ordered the shot and ambulance chaser. A line around the corner. Another tweeter waiting to get into the ultimate D.C. event. A congressional hearing on C-SPAN. But if it's all that not bad enough, check this out. They interviewed a dog. My dog was just interviewed about Comey outside the corner bar. We may have jumped the shark. He declined to comment for the record. In Los Angeles, huge one out doing D.C. As I told you earlier, people in D.C., blah, blah, blah. Matt Pierce. Comey watches. It's 6.30 a.m. in Los Angeles. The first cork has popped at the watch party I'm covering. But they made it even more stupider than the dog because they had Comey watch yoga to get yourself calmed down prior to the hearing. I mean, they were all in on this, folks. So then it starts coming unraveled. Right out the gate... Comey agrees with Cotton reference to the New York Times February 14th story is almost entirely wrong. That story, Trump campaign aides had repeated contact with Russia. The contacts in the years before the election were revealed by intercept communications according to four current and former security officials. James Comey just confirmed the New York Times printed fake news. Comey said that New York Times story on Russian investigation was wrong. In the main, it was not true. Roger Simon. Comey says the story in the New York Times was in the main. Not true. Alex Pappas. Comey. We don't call the press to say you have this thing wrong. We have to leave it there. Dylan Byers. Comey, with no disrespect to reporters. Those who talk classified info usually don't know what's happening. Those who know don't usually talk. So right out the gate. Understand... That story was carried by every news agency. And as we've shown on this fake news from the left, and once again, I'm not disputing there was fake news during the election, I'm just saying. On the left, the fake news goes out, it gets carried, New York Times, WAPO does it, CNN carries it, MSDNC, PBS, ABC, CBS. By the time we're done, it's been retweeted like 300,000 friggin' times. The retraction gets retweeted 300 times. So it was all fake. It was just to discredit the president. That's why they're doing it. That's why we've been saying it. And Comey confirmed that. Of course, you know, we'll see. New York Times really didn't give a fuck. So by the time we're almost, well, we're done, Chris Matthews, Trump-Russia collusion theory came apart. Comey 
testimony. Liberal MSDNC host Chris Matthews said Thursday the accusation that President Trump directly colluded with Russia to interfere in the U.S. election came apart following his testimony. In his written and spoken testimony on Thursday, Comey said that he never felt that Trump had tried to impede the FBI's investigation in Russia, even that the president encouraged it, and he suggested that former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn wasn't at the heart of the investigation. The assumption of the critics of the president of his pursuers, you might say, is that somewhere along the line in the last year is the president had something to do with colluding with Russia to affect the election in some way, Matthew said on MSDNC, and yet... What came apart this morning was that theory. Matthew said, listening two reasons why. First, he said Comey revealed that Flynn wasn't central Russia investigation. And secondly, he said that kills the idea that Flynn might have been in a position to testify against Trump. And if that's not the case, where's there there? Matthew said. In his testimony, Comey confirmed media reports that Trump had asked him if he could drop the FBI investigation into Flynn and that the president asked for his loyalty. But Comey also asserted that he had told Trump that he was not personally under any investigation and that the president had encouraged the Russian investigation, even if implicated in his associates. Yeah, Cheryl Atkinson decided to see how many people were going to stand up. Did New York Times issue correction for article Comey said was untrue and incorrect? Or does New York Times believe Comey is an error on that point? Whoopsie-daisy, AP, May 10th, Trump asserted, told him three times he's not under investigation, a questionable claim that, if true, would be startling breach of protocol. Wouldn't happen, said former federal prosecutor. That was printed May 10th by AP, U.S. News, and World Report. Bad anonymous source, I guess, she tweeted. They show the U.S. News reports. Oops, May 10th, Harvard Law Professor Tribe incorrectly states Trump wasn't telling truth about Comey, assuring him he wasn't under investigation. Trump's self-serving assertion was completely implausible. To put it bluntly, it appears to have been blatant lie, Professor said. But according to Comey today, it's Prof. Tribe drew an incorrect and unsupported conclusion. And she just starts breaking down everybody. The New York Times, by the end of the day, we are looking into James Comey's statement and we will report back with more information as soon as we can. They then report it back. They can't find these three sources that supposedly said, supposedly said the president was colluding. That's your New York Times. No integrity. James Wood so we learned that neither the Russians nor the New York Times succeeded in fixing the election. We know they both tried, however, and he nailed it. He nailed it. You know, if it wasn't the polls, if it wasn't Hillary lost, and it's not now not this, I go back to you, Chuck Toad, who doesn't listen to the show, but I wish he would. Why wouldn't a Republican run against the media? You, you do nothing but try to take down conservatives. You allow Democrats to do whatever you, they want to do. You worked as part of a PR campaign against Trump for the entire campaign cycle, and you haven't stopped since he was president. You've ran every possible story you can find that can maybe lead to an impeachment. And none of it's 
true. None of it. To show that they didn't even relent? New York Daily News. Liar. The president is on the cover with the liar across his face. They're not going to stop. They're just not going to stop. It doesn't matter to them. They think they found some nuggets and they're going to run with it. And the nuggets, Trump lied about Flynn. Trump lied in calling Russian case a hoax. Trump lied about why I was fired. That's the cover. They haven't stopped. So for conservatives, probably, you know, even though we covered all that, that's big news. But this one was not a surprise for me. Democrats, Lynch told company to call Hillary Case a matter, not an investigation. That is actually what happened. As Democrats across the country sit on their hands this morning praying Comey will drop some sort of magical bomb that impeaches Trump, stories about the aftermath of Clinton's meeting with Lynch are flooding social media, like this little nugget, which will likely make Hillary turn a little pale. At the meeting, everyone agreed that Mr. Comey should not reveal details about the Clinton investigation. But Ms. Lynch told him to be even more circumspect. Do not even call it an investigation, she said. According to three people attending the meeting, call it a matter. So Twitter, Twitter's Federal Bureau of Matters, Katie Pavlich, News Attorney General Loretta Lynch told Comey not to call Clinton investigation an investigation, rather a matter. Brad Jaffe, Comey said Bill Clinton's tarmac meeting with Lynch is what pushed him to make public statements on Clinton investigation findings. Maggie Haberman, yes. In an ultimately conclusive way, Comey says of going public re-email probe after Lynch-Clinton tarmac meeting. All that was not supposed to be important at all either. So this whole Lynch-Clinton collusion actually is factual, while the Russian-Trump collusion is not factual. An attorney general wordsmithing to not hurt a candidate. Remember, Sessions Sessions is reclosed from all this because he had meetings with ambassadors because he was a fucking senator. There's my one F-bomb. But the Attorney General before had meetings on tarmacs and wouldn't even call an investigation an investigation. I think we have an integrity problem. I think we do. But pay it no mind, because Chris Hayes, Comey pretty much clearly thinks the president is guilty of obstruction. He said nothing of the sort. Nothing. A political cartoon that came out, not in a conservative magazine, picture of Comey, Two people sitting watching on a couch. I'm lost. Comey is good cop now. Because now the media thinks he's like freaking Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments. I, I, wow. So since they have so much egg in their face, they're not going to admit they have egg in their face. They're not going to admit they printed fake news. They're not going to admit that Trump wasn't lying about being told three times that he wasn't under investigation. They're just going to keep going on. That's what they're going to do. 
So here's a media mash. ABC omits Comey testimony about Lynch altogether. NBC, no smoking gun, but a horrendous day for Trump. Not them, not the left, not the people who keep on saying this Russia collusion's there. Not all the people that lie, not the media. It's just Trump. Nicole Wallace, two sound bites that just shows she's trying whatever she can to get somebody to watch her over on MSDNC. Uh, King Media will bury Comey. Will bury the uh, Lynch statement. They're gonna, they're not even going to cover it. Seltzer, Putin's the big winner. Cuomo, Lynch bombshell, saying it means nothing. That's what he says. Enjoy this bias. I do think whatever happens with the Russian investigation, we have a president who's very different. And these hearings today made it very clear he's a different uh, different animal politically than we've ever seen before. He's trying to shape the White House, shape the United States government, and basically this country to him. He's trying to get us used to his style of government, where he's the boss. And uh, the bureaucracy's under him, the press is under him, the courts are under him. He's trying to get us used to that all the time. I don't think he's used to the fact he's constrained by the Constitution, by checks and balances, by a free press, and by basically a public service out there. I'm not sure he's ready for that. I go back to Watergate. And one big difference in Watergate in terms of the language used. John Dean said there's a cancer on the presidency. And President Trump said there's a cloud over the presidency. Different mindsets. Nixon and his people were thinking about the institution of the presidency. Whatever you think of Nixon, he was trying to protect his presidency. Trump's trying to defend his butt, personally, against bad PR. Here you have a former FBI director who called the sitting president of the United States a liar on more than one occasion. He said that he thought that the president had defamed him, that the administration had defamed Director Comey. I think James Comey painted a picture of a president uh, committing bad behavior, unethical behavior, if, uh, politically damaged to the institution. But he did not paint a easy picture, probably, on the obstruction of justice charge. Comey was very careful not to allege that. He walked up to the line. He is giving uh, Robert Mueller the opportunity to see if that indeed ends up being the case. But he stopped short there. So if you're a Democrat looking for the smoking gun behind motive, you didn't get it. If you're a Republican, I think you've got specific things you can feel as if you can defend the president on. But atmospherically, big picture, this is still a horrendous day for this president. I mean, now we know why he hired Mark Kazowitz. I mean, this is just wacko stuff. I mean, Maggie Haberman quotes 30 people a day who get on the phone and talk about their interactions with Donald Trump. So <laughs> that are privileged. Kaz- Kazowitz is going to be really busy if this is what Donald Trump hired him to do. I mean, this is just crazy stuff. Comey was under oath. He was asked questions, and, and, and he answered them in a forthright manner. If you put anyone, half the people that work in this administration, under oath, they would answer it the same way. They probably wouldn't be as forthcoming. I mean, literally, the New York Times and the Washington Post has 30 source stories yep. every day. So I don't know how Mark Kaslitz is going to keep up with him if every person that talks about their face-to-face encounters with Donald Trump is investigated. And investigated for what? 
I mean, what is he, what are they investigating Comey for doing? Right, there's no criminal he, violation. He, to, and, right. and what Comey uh, put out through a friend from Columbia Law School was um, really just a corroborating piece of information about an interaction that Donald Trump tweeted about and said, I have tapes. So let's let's play this tape thread, thread along for a minute. Trump said, wait till I release the tapes. tapes. Comey said, yay, or lordy, or whatever the heck he said that was the cutest moment of the day. He said, yay, there are tapes. Well, so here's what happened. And, and you'll see it, too, on those tapes that Donald Trump has. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I think we have to stop and acknowledge that we are covering a goat rodeo. I mean, I mean this is the president of the United States with me alone saying, I hope this. I took it as this is what he wants me to do. Now, I didn't, I didn't obey that, but that's the way I took it. We're back. Uh, Nicole Wallace, I was kind of uh, surprised that they were going to litigate the difference between hope and, and order. I've been alone in the Oval Office with the president who has said um, things, I guess, in that spirit. And there's no ambiguity. When a president has you alone in the Oval Office and asks you to do something, um, you go do it. Uh, you, you don't go back to your office and wonder if that was a, a spirit or a sentiment. You can do whatever he asked you to do. Um, now, I was never asked to do anything that crossed any ethical boundaries, and, and the point is, Comey felt like it was. You know, this, this idea, though, of, of the son as the only person sort of channeling his president um, and, and attacking the character of Comey, I think speaks for itself. I mean, this is a president without a lot of defenders in Congress, without a lot of defenders in the law enforcement community. A normal White House on a day like today would have you know, former attorneys general would have former people in law enforcement sort of making legal arguments. But for, you know, a guy who kills baby elephants for kicks to be giving James Comey a lesson in character and strength of character is rich at best and pathetic at worst. Well, and not to he was asked specifically about his statements to the FBI. Mm -hmm. Do you have any reason to believe he gave false statements to the FBI? And he said that's one of the reasons he was under criminal investigation. A number of significant things. One, this won't get much attention because it's in the rearview mirror, but a pretty damning account from Jim Comey there about Loretta Lynch, the former attorney general in the Obama administration, and her handling of the Clinton email investigation. It won't get much attention, but that was pretty damning. He, Number he two. Said, he said that Loretta yeah. Lynch yeah. told him, uh, don't call it an investigation. Call it a matter. Call it a matter. Right. Call it a matter. And he said he was confused by that and concerned by that. What this really did to me thematically for Comey is reiterate, I think, what's going to raise some pretty fair criticism once again, which is <laughs> he's so interested in being the last line of defense for the credibility of the FBI and inherently himself that I think at times it undermines his own arguments he's trying to make to show his objectivity. Now, I think what he said was very important today. It illuminated a lot of issues. It did raise other issues. But that will be a criticism that he will continue to get, particularly because the obstruction issue cannot foreseeably go away. It is the beginning of an investigative inquiry. It's not the end of one. But he has positioned himself in a manner that he dons a cape to say, I alone, he started his argument talking about, I was insulted and the FBI was defamed by what happened here. And he goes on to talk about these things. I think largely the conversation about leaks is a, a sideshow. It's a talking point for conservative media uh, to say the president uh, had a good day and not a very bad day here. Look, if, if you are if you are James Comey and you feel there is a problem at the top of our government, what do you do? You tell a couple of your friends and you try to get the word out however you can. Whatever the president said to Comey, it's not necessarily classified, not necessarily privileged. Not every conversation they had was a secret. But this White House seems to be trying to keep a lot 
lot of secrets. That, that was my takeaway all morning, Brooke, was that there's a lot of secrets inside this White House. Is he taping conversations or not? That's a secret. We're not going to tell you the answer. And I can't help but think, who's really the winner today? Is it Vladimir Putin? And, you know, this is, Comey's telling the country to pay attention to this crisis, this attack by Russia. And he says it's going to happen again. And yet, what do we hear a lot today? Partisan squabbling. The left and the right bickering all over social media and sometimes on television about who's right and who's wrong here. Russian propaganda outlets are loving this today, Brooke. I'm Republicans are lining up behind the president, arguing that he's new to the job, and that explains everything he said to James Comey. And they say it's really about President Obama's Attorney General Loretta Lynch and why she tried to, in their terms, obstruct that investigation. That was their big takeaway from yesterday, and that tells you everything about the political tribalism at play right now. David Gregory, and I open this to any of you if you want to push back on it, uh, but couldn't you argue that the president got what he needed most out of yesterday? While I'm not differing with any of your analysis in terms of the import of yesterday and what it could mean. When Burr said, hey, I want to talk to you about Loretta Lynch mm -hmm. and her wanting to call an investigation a matter and the GOP in chorus, like Shakespeare, all saying, oh, that could be obstruction. And Paul Ryan saying, well, the president, yeah, he ordered people out of the room, but he's new to this. Didn't he get what he needed most of all in a political process? His party is behind him. The facts be damned. But David, is that being on board with President Trump or is that agenda, agenda, agenda? We want Obamacare repealed. That's what we promised. We want tax reform and lower taxes. That nice little vote yesterday, pulling yes. back the protections to kind of keep right. people safe from crazy yes. financial practices. Now, I could then play a whole grandstanding of the left trying to cling to something obstruction, whatever, where they can't really get anything out of it because there was no smoking gun, Trump wasn't lying, the media was freaking totally just fake news and like crazy. But I won't. I'll just play the queen of this all. Here's Nancy Pelosi. Listen to this shite. I mean, some of us in the media have to take our lumps for saying that the president was under investigation for Russia when Comey yesterday said he wasn't. Do you have any readout on, on how we've done and how we can fix things moving forward? Well, there, again, it's about words. You know, that's, it's all about words. And the president has to understand this. Words spoken by the president of the United States weigh a ton. It's not like any word that any of the rest of us would say. I mean, you had the power of words. That's what you do. You know the power of words. But spoken by the President of the United States, they weigh a ton. So when they say, am I under investigation? No, you're not. That, that doesn't necessarily mean your campaign is not under investigation. And again, I don't know what the subtleties were in terms of... of uh, well, I had the different impression. He was under investigation, and, and now it's time for us to say, well, we, we got it wrong. And from your perspective, how do we fix that? And how do we, we have an outside it? commission, uh, an independent outside commission that looks into it. Uh, and we make sure that public opinion is aware of the fact that this is important. Because in their lives right now and always, what's important is their financial stability. Here we are seven months since the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. And was we, as we look to our responsibilities to the American people, 
uh, we can see that it's seven months of failure. Uh, we have to, all, it's all about, it's all about security. Our national security, whether that's national security globally, homeland security, personal security, our national security has been jeopardized by his attitude uh, toward Putin. To put Putin on a pedestal, he's questioned Article 5 of, the, of NATO. He has uh, flirted with the idea of not enforcing or uh, uh, expanding any sanctions against Russia in terms of their aggressive military behavior uh, in Europe. Uh, it is... Uh, in terms of our economic security, where are the jobs? The election was about jobs, 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 jobs. He promised jobs. What has he done? He's been a jobs loser. Uh, he has one bill that he has sent over here, health care bill, takes uh, over 20 million, 23, 24, 25. You can't take whatever estimate. Uh, 25 million, 23. Let's take the low figure. million Americans will lose their health coverage because of his proposal. And it is a job loser. 1.8, estimated to be 1.8 million jobs lost. Donald Trump is a job loser. Yeah, I love how the media talks to her and some of those questions. It, it, it's in the first soundbite, and then you hear her melting down about job lo- just whatever. She's such a frick. I, I, I don't even hate her. I hate the people that elect her. Who could vote for that? Really? Have some damn standards. But long story short, they're on the same team. Same team. So CNN issues a Weasley correction. Here are the opening paragraphs to the original, which is fortunately still available on the website. Comey expected to refute Trump during congressional testimony. This much, his much anticipated congressional testimony on Thursday, FBI Director James Comey will dispute President Trump. And then they basically said, well, yeah, I guess not. WAPO laid out the case for obstruction, except they didn't say that. They have a whole article. It's not true. Not true. David Axelrod, maybe we should reflect on the sober meaning of what we just saw for at least a few hours before turning into a partisan missile. Somebody said, that's just precious. Hard to believe you typed that with a straight face. And Stephen Miller, like your former boss did when every mass shooting. The Democrats, I was honestly concerned he might lie about the nature of our meeting, so I thought it important to document. Here's the problem with the documenting. He fucking documented on government computer and he's the FBI director. So my conclusions on this shit. No Trump collusion, period. It is what it has always been, a political Smoke and mirror to block Trump. That's all it is. It it is a hoax. As Tucker Carlson says. Loretta Lynch and the Obama administration was pushing for Hillary and protected her from the prosecution. During this time, there was no read for him to come out and talk about, oh, it needs to be a matter or anything. But all of a sudden, now he felt he needed to document it on a government computer and have integrity because he doesn't like Trump. He liked Obama because he's a Democrat. He was a Republican, and then he said he wasn't anymore. But the media didn't latch on to that. He was a Democrat, so he protected her, had integrity, but now he hates the president. So, you know, he's a piece of shit. 
Number three, media has been printing fake news forever, all of it cloaked under reliable sources, which are lying because they're partisans. Or they're just making it up now for clickbait. I can't tell which one it is. Because even the New York Times, we can't find the sources anymore. I, I really am starting to get to the point. Are they making this up? Is this their assumption? Do they believe? Do they really believe in this theory that Trump colluded, so they're just printing stuff? Comey, number four, leaked privileged information. During the Obama administration, how many times did executive privilege be used? A bunch. Just basic conversations. But the fact is, he took notes as the FBI director, not a citizen. The fact it was notes that he put on a government computer. Fact he was on the clock. Fact his privileged information, as all is with the president. Fact Obama blocked every investigation with executive privilege. Fact he leaked it with explicit intent on getting a special prosecutor. Those are his words, not mine. He gave it to a doggone uh, professor in Columbia... Just to get a special prosecutor. Because he too believes it, but there's no facts. That's a fact too. Five, the left and the media don't care. They will continue lying to the American people to their own peril. For those who actually search for facts and are not sheep are slowly getting tired of a media that keeps repeatedly lying to them. And my last fact, resistance, you are all sheep and you will reap what you sow. Because this is what they're saying now. The Hill. As many people watch Comey testify as watch the NBA Finals. New York Times. James Comey testimony was ratings gold. Even at 10 in the morning. New York Times media. 19.5 million Americans watch Comey testimony. About the same number who watch Game 2 of the NBA Finals. Lefties. But I thought nobody cared about Russia's story. Yet conservatives, Republicans, talking heads keep telling us we don't care about Trump corruption. The Hill, wonderful. Citizen involvement was in decline before Trump was elected. Now it's roaring back. That's a lefty who typed it. In decline. Yeah, because you didn't care. Another one. The most hopeful sentence I've read all year. Bilal Bylock. The people really want the president gone and the post-Watergate and even OJ generation watching to see life imitate art. Angela G. Anyone who claims we don't care about the Trump-Russia cover-up is a fucking fool. Where's the picture of those liberal loons crying when they realized Comey was a leaker and the president was never under investigation? Ben Shapiro, Comey says Trump didn't ask him to stop the Russia investigation. There goes the leftist narrative. Boom. And Chris Stamper, they'll shift their narrative as they always do. Of course, they won't acknowledge said shift. So as people come out and say, it's the Republicans who are spinning this, it's you, lefties, not the Republicans. If you scored this in any meaningful manner, Trump won. There's more things that went in his favor than things that didn't. Yet, you don't want to recognize it. And we're going to continue as a country to keep going on this crazy Russiagate bullshit 
that isn't true. And you're selling this because the next president is going to get the same technique. You watch. Conservative groups are getting smart. They're learning how to get to sponsors. They're learning how to hurt TV hosts just like you do. And our country is going to continue to go down this shithole. Because what should have been the media statements at the end. Trump is not. The president was absolved from this investigation. The president was right when he said he was told three times he's not on investigation. And oh wow. During the Obama administration. The Attorney General was very political, and they're not supposed to be. Because remember, they were part of the session reclusion. They pushed for it, too. The whole event saddens me. It just saddens me. So to a music break, because we've had like an hour intro and haven't taken a break, and we're going to The Leftovers, and we'll just go straight into uh, some sound bites from the show.
Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reese. Just relax. There it is. Looks good. Perfectly healthy. Do you want to hear the heartbeat? Yes, I am. I do. I, that's me. Um, sorry. Well, I, I, are you the same person I was just talking to? Seriously, I don't have the reference. When mommy was single in 28, she used to use quarters for this, but now she has to put money into a machine to get a card to put into another machine. Oh, God damn it! Can you squeeze me in at five or something? Yeah. I, oh, hold on. Oh, what do you think? There's a button, a red button. Yeah. Honey. It's okay, baby. Yeah. It's a red uh, button. Um, oh, my God. Just press it in with a pen or something. Oh, it's perfect. It'll... Step back up. Okay, I'm in the car right now. Can you make the formula? I'm gonna be home and Sam?
I was in the parking lot, naked, curled up like a baby. It was the same parking lot I'd just been in, except there were no trucks, no people, no nothing. It was cold, so I started to walk. I walked by empty houses, abandoned buildings, and I found a store, so I went in, and there were clothes there, clothes hanging on racks, so I got dressed, and I got back to walking. I walked long enough to convince myself that I was the only thing alive in that place. And then night came, and I saw lights, so I went to them. It was a house, and there was a man and a woman there. They were kind, and they told me. The man told me that seven years earlier he was in a supermarket and every single person disappeared except for him. And the woman told me that she lost her husband, her three daughters, and all eight of her grandchildren. And that's when I understood. Over here, we lost some of them. But over there, they lost all of us. So I went and did what I came there to do. I went to find my kids. Planes don't really fly over there. They have the resources, just not enough pilots. So I found a boat that would take me. No boats go directly from Australia to New York. So it took me a long time to get there. A long time. But I finally did. And I walked through Mapleton. I walked through the town where I grew up. where my parents died and met, where you and I met. Most of the houses are overgrown with weeds, but the streetlights still turned on at night, and that made me feel less stupid about expecting them still to be there, still there in the very same house where I lost them. When I got there, I stood behind a tree across the street and I waited because I was too scared to go up and knock. And then, after a while, the door opened. At first, I didn't recognize them. A tall, teenage boy with curly hair. And a girl maybe 11. They were my children. And then my husband came out and he was with a woman. She was pretty. 
She was pretty, and they were all smiling. They were happy. And I understood that here in this place, they were the lucky ones. In a world full of orphans, they still had each other. And I was a ghost. I was a ghost who had no place there. The physicists who sent me through told me the first person to use the machine was the guy who invented it. His name was Dr. Von Egan. I'm pretty sure they were making fun of me, but they said when I went over that I should look him up, so I did. That took a long time, too. But I found him, and I asked him to make another machine, because he already knew how. And he asked me, if I'd come all that way, why in God's name did I want to go back? And I told him, it's because I didn't belong there. So he built it. And I came back through. I came back here. Did I think about you? Did I want to call you? Did I want to be with you, Kevin? Of course I did. But so much time had passed. It was too late. And I knew that if I told you what happened, that you would never believe me. I believe you. You do? Why wouldn't I believe you? You're here.
Okay, th- this show was probably one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, I remember watching HBO, and we saw a preview for it. And, of course, you didn't really know how in-depth it was going to go. You just had the concept that basically part of the earth was, like, raptured. If you're religious, they just went away. And then you went over three years of just emotional, crazy... It's hard to describe the show... Because it really is a journey, um, as we'll hear, you know, the actors believe it's a show about family and love, but there's times where it's literally, you're watching psychosis and craziness and how people deal with grief. And, you know, it is not your normal show. It is an intellectual show that you're really going to have to sit and watch. I'm watching it for the second time. I've watched uh, all three seasons. And I've just gotten done with uh, season one for the second time. Um, as a person that suffers from depression, it's probably a show I never should watch because it does affect me. Um, it's very sad. But the acting is just incredible. The music is just... There, there's a whole YouTube channel out there that is everything sadder with leftover music. You can look it up. And they show happy scenes with leftover music and you get sad. Uh, the lead-in song was actually, uh, you heard James Blake retrograde, which is from the show. And then it goes into Max, um, Max Unger. What is his name? Max Unger. Let me make it. Max Richter. Max Richter. And he plays just beautiful pieces that are just so powerful. And that's the backdrop. So there are spoilers in this if you haven't watched it. Um, but it won't matter because by the time you get to the ending, it, it's, uh, you know, it's worth the journey either way. So the articles I picked is the leftovers flawless final finale earns its place in the new television canon. These eyes of mine, they don't lie. The leftovers has earned the right to whatever kind of finale it damn well pleases. That feels like an odd thing to say about a television show that topped out at only 28 episodes, barely more than many broadcast shows cr- crank out in every year. I, that's the one thing I would complain about. I, I've already written out HBO that, that with, with the ending. We could have had a season four. I don't know why we didn't. And I know the ratings were low, but each year you, you got 10. 10 episodes. And not even 10 for the third one of the seasons. I think it's season two. Um it's kind of like, wow, man, I wanted more, but I think that's the design. Um, the show grew out of a novel, then became a best sell, self in the off book second and third seasons. So somehow ending at this point feels both premature and overdue. Between its aggressive weirdness and anemic ratings, it's pretty amazing the leftovers last as long as it did. In the show's short lifespan, Tom Parada the Dame, and Damon Lindenloff have made a show so confident and powerful to complain about the way it ended would almost seem ungrateful somehow. And because The Leftovers is about a world full of questions without easy answers, there's not as much pressure for the finale to serve as a laundry list of resolutions or to dilutefully flesh out chunks of mythology um, to drive the point home. Iris Dements lets the mystery be reappears as a final opening credit theme, which... Um, we won't play. It's kind of like a folk song. 
Unlike the, la- unlike the last installment of Lost, which came at the end of a six-season high-wire act, it was much harder for Lindelof to mess up the finale of a show that has trained its audience to expect nothing and appreciate everything. It's not a matter of lowered expectations or blind fandom. By making a show so brave and mysterious, Lindelof and Parada put themselves in a position to create a series finale that is, to some extent, self-validating. All that said, the Book of Nora will satisfy far more fans of Leftovers than those who have fallen in love with the characters and are happy to go along for the ride, no matter the destination. This is a finale likely to satisfy even those with the most stringent standards, those who have been nervous about how a show as broad and far-reaching as this one could possibly conclude in an appropriate way. Quite simply, it's one of the best series finales I've ever seen, and one that cements the Leftovers as one of the finest drama series in recent memories. As its book-ended title suggests, the Book of Nora is all about Nora Durst, who last we saw preparing to embark on a journey to the other side to hopefully reunite with her children. For those who have seen the show, she, on October 14th, the day of the departure, loses two kids and a husband. So during the course of all of this, she then finds scientists at a machine that lets you go to the other side. So we do get some information about the other side, because through the whole show, you have no idea. You either have religious versions, agnostic versions, and psychotic versions. Um, By the time we join her, Nora has already figured out how to overcome whatever objections doctors Eden and Becker had to sending her through the radiation portal. She follows a protocol, including a final will and testament committed to videotape to identify the rogue doctors. She says goodbye to Matt, who is reasonably terrified of the whole prospect, but sports a sister and understands more than anyone the desire to leave the world on your own terms. Nora listens to the details of the procedure, which are so terrifying I half expected her to change her mind. Instead, she climbs into the tank, holds her breath, and while the chamber fills up with a mysterious liquid that will zap her beyond the dimensions. From there, the episode cuts to Sarah... The weathered Australian dove wrangler we first met at the end of Don't Be Ridiculous. She claims not to know anyone named Kevin, but the nun to whom Sarah delivers a flock of doves says Kevin's looking for her, so she's not completely surprised when Kevin Garvey turns up at her door asking for Nora Durst. But she is surprised by the story he tells her. Kevin claims he's a touring tourist hanging out in Australia with his father, and he just happens to run across Nora in off-the-beaten-path travels and remembered her from Mapleton, where he still allegedly lives, and works as chief of police. Kevin invites Nora to dance, and after a brief phone conversation with Lori, who's very much alive, reluctantly accepts the invitation. They say that because in the last, the next to last episode, Lori, <coughs> a, per, a, per, a, a, a character that's very interesting, looks like she's going to commit suicide. By going scuba diving. So you're just left with this. She goes in the water and doesn't come back up. And so being that the show is so brutally, you know, harsh on people dying, sadness, etc. You're left, you know, you have no other, if you've watched it, you have no other, all, you know, there's no other solution. She's dead. Then all of a sudden she's alive. One of the remarkable things about the Book of Nora is how small it is. How it doesn't try to accomplish everything. Visits every character, details the fate of the guilty remnant, or determines whether the U.S. government has been infiltrated by murderous dog people. It's a story about a man and a woman in a love story that has spanned years, continents, dimensions, and states of consciousness. And despite all this, that history, Kevin is willing to pretend it doesn't even exist just to have another moment of tender intimacy with the love of his life. 
Even now, Kevin and Nora are different from each other in many ways, so while Kevin finds peace in the improvisation, Nora is driven crazy by it. She doesn't want it, for it isn't real, and she's all about real now. <clears throat> Kevin returns to Nora's farm to confess the truth. He remembers everything they went through together, as well as the intense pain he experienced when he was told she had gone to the other side. He refused to believe that Nora was gone, and spent every moment he had free looking for her in Australia. Nora explains where she's been and why she's never let him know when she returned. As it turns out, the radiation machine zapped her to the other side, as promised, but when she got there, all she found was an exact replica of the world, but one in which 98% of the world's population had vanished, just as 2% vanished in the world we've been watching. She found her family, but realized she had been replaced. Her husband and children were happy in spite of the circumstances, because by losing one member of the family, they're considered the lucky ones on their side of the dimension. Now that blew my mind, because there is no validation of where these people went. They don't show this. It's just dialogue that she went there and she came back. And for me, I thought instantly, why in the hell wasn't that the version? Because in this version and in the book, 2% of the world goes away. What would it be like for 98% of the world to leave? 98% is no longer there. That would be shocking. I mean, she even says in one of the statements, they don't have enough pilots to fly the planes. The world's the same. It's a dimensional plane, but there's nobody to do some of these things. There wouldn't be enough doctors. There wouldn't be enough policemen, yada, yada, yada. It'd be a different world. The final scene between Kevin and Nora is one of the most moving and devastating minutes of television I can remember. With a script credited to Lindoff and Parada, it's hard to know who's responsible for what, but Nora's tour de force monologue sounds novelistic, like a long stretch of prose directly from Parada. And kudos to Mimi Letter, who among other amazing displays of directional vision, shot the scene perfectly. Given how long Nora's monologue is, there might have been a temptation to avoid breaking away from her or to slowly push in on her face. But Leader frames the scene so that you never forget that this is a conversation between two people. It feels truly intimate and real, even as Nora's telling a story so difficult to fathom, though she's, re- she's telling it to the person who can most relate to it. Had the book of Nora just consisted of the interactions between Kevin and Nora, it would have still been perfect, but the script goes so far as to let Kevin quickly detail Matt's funeral and provide updates on what's happening with the many characters who don't make appearances in the episode. If anything, the book of Nora might go a little too far with the punction. But man, there's so little to complain about in the final episode of a show that makes the biggest most terrifying questions, and turns them into sweeping love stories. Her observation. Kevin has a pacemaker now. That part is true, so he's not death-proof after all. The multiple drownings could have helped his cardiovascular, couldn't have helped his cardiovascular health. During the show, he goes to the other side and is believed to be Jesus to um, some of the characters. They even write the book of Kevin, like a biblical book. And that alternate world gets destroyed in an episode, The Most Powerful Man in the World, which is just one of the best episodes of TV I've ever watched. And 
More on that later. Amy Brennan is in the episode for long, but she makes good use of the few minutes she's there. Otis Redding, I've Got Dreams to Remember, is yet another fine addition to Leftover's excellent music collection. If Nora's experience represent the other side with regards to sudden departure, then Kevin has been doing some someplace much, much different. What and where is that place? I suppose we'll never know, but I'm good with that. Love Nora's casual invitation to tea following Kevin's breathless, Kevin's breathless, breathless speech about how long he's been trying to find her. The final shot of Doves returning killed me dead. Thanks for reading. It's been awesome to write about the show as this person's thing. They they start in one of the episodes with people waiting for Doves to come and they believe, and this is like in the 18th century, that's a sign that they're going to the rapture. And so in this case, you find out the Doves have to do with weddings. And Nora raises these Doves. People attach messages to the doves, and doves fly away, and then they come back to Nora's house. But in the end of this wedding that he invites her to, the doves don't come back. It's never happened. They're not there. And as they pull away from that scene where basically he believes her, they're back together. There's a happy moment on the leftovers, you know, because you haven't had one. These doves start flying back to their coop. And it's almost symbolic. Um, it's symbolic. Um, this show, as I said, well, one of the titles of an article, it, in its series finale, The Leftover crosses beautifully to the other side of grief. And I think that's, you know, because I have so many articles, I'm not going to read them all. Um, cause like now that I'm looking at it, it's, it's kind of silly to go through all this. Um, it touches grief, psychosis, relationships. And there are times in there, if you've had any mental illness, I guess I should say, if you've gone through depression, if you've had OCDs, there's been time in your life that you've had such impactful events that have rocked your world. Somehow this show, as you're watching it, you feel it. It relates to you in a way. And it is hard not to get attached to these people. It's hard not to understand each character, their interactions, how they act, and somehow go, okay, I I get that. I don't know why. Um, I usually don't get fandom for TV shows. Um, The Unit was the last show I was affected by when it ended. Um, because it ended like with no ending. They just, they cut it. Talk soup. Um, I was affected because now I lost a major thing I did every Saturday morning. I watched talk soup and it was just gone. And to be honest, when I thought about, I didn't always watch it. It was just something I played in the background. It was part of my life, and they took the freaking thing away because it's been on TV forever, you know. Um, this one, I loved. You know, I, I I tried Homeland after season two. I don't know, it lost me. Um, you, you know, I like Game of Thrones like everybody else, but the whole fucking dragon wizard bullshit, okay, that's just not my style. And The Leftovers is so powerful. The music, the way they shot it, the emotions. You just don't see a show like, I don't know how these actors did it. Because, um, 
I don't know how many times I cried during the show, which is something I don't do, but it's just so powerful what you're watching that you have nothing but to cry. Um, Kevin Gardy, which was Justin Thoreau, I think that's how you say his name, yeah. Carrie Coon, who plays Nora Durst, the way they act, I mean, there's a scene in season one, um, so to give a little background, you know, uh, some of these people are, are mourning, some people join a cult called the Gu- Guilty Remnant, and the Guilty Remnant literally gets pictures of everybody in their town who had, who had, had the departure, had left. And they cue in in a couple of the episodes a company that now makes life-size replicas that feel like humans so you can bury somebody because that's part of the grieving process. That's a part of, you know, anybody who lost somebody in combat or uh, children that have been abducted. That, that is one of the parts that you can't have... You can't have closure because you can't bury the person. You you can't complete this tragedy because you can't see them. And they put these life-size replicas in everybody's house in the pose that they were. It, it frames on a scene of a guy cleaning out his gutters. And then it goes to Nora Durst or the a retarded family's... Um, he has downs, not retarded, but he has downs, and he's sitting at the table. And then you go into Nora Durst, and she's brushing her teeth, and she walks downstairs, and sitting at the table is her husband, and the cherry was at, and the kids flipped. Uh, his daughter was on the, her daughter was on the right, and, and her son was on the left, but they have it backwards. And the emotion in that scene, with the music and no dialogue, is probably one of the most powerful things I've ever seen on on the boob tube and definitely the most powerful thing I've ever seen on a movie it, it was gut-wrenching if you actually just put yourself like holy crap what would you do and with the psychotic stuff and him going in and out and Patty is a character that is just evil and she was the cult leader of the show and how that is part of Kevin Garvey's psychosis and there's a, a scene where he has to kill her to get out from the psychotic state that he's in when he goes in his dream world or he goes to a plane. It's hard to tell, you know, with what the story really is. Um, he has to kill a little girl. It's just really, I mean, you got to watch it. Give it a shot. Uh, those that have never seen it or think I'm full of crap, I, I wouldn't cover this if it wasn't just, I think it's epic. I don't know why the ratings were terrible. I think some of it was season one was so goddamn depressing. I think a lot of people didn't want it because they're like, okay, I can't take this. I leave the show depressed, sad. But for some reason, for me, a person who has, you know, chronic depression at times in my life, I don't know. For me, it was like cathartic to feel that, embrace it. And it wasn't for me. It wasn't my life. It wasn't my sadness. It was a different sadness. And I'd wear it for a while. It sounds creepy, but that's that's what I do. And I don't know. But uh, seven unambiguous post-finale facts from Justin Thoreau, Carrie Coon, and creator, the creators of the show. Um, some cast members believe Nora and some cast members do not. Plus, Justin Thoreau gave his beard to a fan. This was an interview they had. Amy Brennan thinks Nora is lying. Once the conversation shifted to an audience, question the topic on everyone's mind. Was she telling the truth? Do you think she was telling the truth? 
they asked the actor who played Nora, yes. Kimmel, who covers these things, then pulled up the crowd and received a hefty portion of applause from those who do believe Nora. No one on the stage would commit to the other side, one side, or excuse me, one side or the other, except Brennan. She raised her hand and said, who doesn't believe Nora? Thoreau, for his part, noted that the show's ambiguous perspective towards Nora's story was reinforced by a formal choice. It's very, te- very telling there is no flashback during that monologue, Thoreau said. Yeah, because she's making it up, Brennan said. And Kuhn joked her with, that's what you believe, Brennan. For me and my wife, I thought it was funny, the whole set, the script, there's there's an article I could read, but I won't, that, that literally says... It ripped up the writer's room. This story that they didn't agree with it. For me and the wife was like, what, what ripped us apart is where the fuck is the other side? Why can't we have the other side? I just want to see the other side. I just want to see one episode, October 14th for the 2%. What, what did they experience? What did they feel? What would it be like just to be in, you know, the opening scenes of this? Somebody is pushing a cart. You don't see it. Because you're following a mother with her baby, and the baby's crying, 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 and the mother's ignoring it, and the baby's gone. And then all of a sudden you see a son, and there's an empty cart, and he's like, Dad, where you at, Dad? And he's freaking out. What would it be like to push in your cart, and then there, nobody's around you? Nobody. Because they do a really good job in this series of flashing back to get you more information about October 14th. Kevin Garvey is cheating on his wife. He's having sex with a woman. The woman disappears. Matt, a major character. His wife looks like she has cerebral palsy, you think. But no, she got hit on that day because somebody disappeared out of the car. Hit that side and, and messed his wife up. So you find all these tidbits, not on the opening pilot, but you find it throughout the course of the three seasons. And so it pieces together why these people are where they're at or gives you some understanding on why is this person crazy or why is this person sad or why is this person, as in Matt's case, super devout, you know, because during the course of the show, his wife comes back to life, so to speak. She's she no longer in this vegetative state. They make they they have sex. They make love more to say. Um, she gets pregnant, you know, it's just like this interesting interlocking of how they wrote it so that you get flashbacks, but then there's times like this, you just don't get shit. Number two, no matter how fitting it might be, Donald Trump could never lead the guilty remnant. They had to go politics because it's Jimmy Kimmel. Number three, the cast definitely took some keepsakes from the set. When asked the cast took home any keepsakes from the set, a hushed silence fell over the panel. It was as if no one wanted a cop to stealing something in front of their bosses. Kevin Carroll tried to be diplomatic saying, no, he didn't take anything, but I wish I would have taken a kangaroo. Then Scott Glenn said that he was given a diggery-doo for Lindendorf, who was fitting considering he was told to learn how to play one before the season began. Thoreau then said he was sent the portrait of President Garvey Seen in several ep- the seventh episode of season three, The Most Powerful Man in the World, Brendan said she took the lighter that Jill made for her, which is such a sad thing, because Jill is Kevin's wife. She joins Guilty Remnant. They have a daughter. It's Christmas. She gives her a lighter that says, don't forget me. And then Jill throws that shit in a sewer. 
because she's indoctrinating a new girl who's lived Tyler into the cult. And then they go back and she gets it. But you don't see she gets it. You find out in season three, right before he goes to uh, the other side as the most powerful man in the world, Jill and him sit and talk and she admits she got it. She got it back. So she saved that. That's pretty cool. Coon then noted how she wasn't given anything, but then copped to stealing the bicycle Nora rides briefly in the first episodes and probably throw out the season finale. If I'm going to be naked, I want that bike. Four, there were be, there, there will be dick jokes. And they, they talked about that. I don't want to ruin that because that's a really cool thing in one of the, um, one of the scenes, most powerful man in the world, that the president has to use something other than his eyes to get into a room. Um, there's a scenes in season three where Kevin is putting a bag, because there's a lot of um, almost suicidal things. Uh, Nora Durst, season one, wears body armor and lets people shoot her. She gets a hooker to come, pays her $3,000 to shoot her in the chest because she wants to feel that. So Kevin, who we believe is happy now, Puts a plastic bag and tapes it around his neck until he can't breathe anymore. Then he rips it off. Well, I guess he was masturbating during that, supposedly. Um, that was the point. Five, Peter Berg and the NPR DJ deserve credit for series of outstanding musics. This is pretty interesting. An audience member asked the team how series composer Mac Richter came to be on the show in Lindenloft explained that Peter Berg found him on a whim. Peter Berg, who directed the pilot, went to go on a one-man show of Macbeth with Alan Cummings in New York, and between the scene breaks, they were playing this music, and Pete said, you've got to find out who wrote that. It turned out to be Max Richter, who'd done some movie work, but had never done television. He's based alternately in Berlin and London, so we called him up and sent him a script for the pilot. He said yes, and the rest was history. As for the existing music that makes up the... Dynamite Leftover Soundtrack, Lindenoff Credit Music Supervisor Lisa Richard. Lisa Richard, that's where it all begins. She's our excellent music supervisor. She's KCRW DJ, which makes us cool. She just compiled a list of amazing songs that she thinks should find a home in the leftovers, and we try to place them. And then sometimes the editors will make a pick in the show, or there are other cases where they'll just try all sorts of different things in the editing room until it sounds right. I want to tell you right now, I have every song, because you can get them on YouTube, and I listen to it. It is just a beautiful soundtrack. It's fantastic music. It, it's powerful. It's amazing. Six, Justin Thoreau gave his season three beard trimmings to a fan. Seven, Lori is still holding Jill's baby during the only scene in the series finale, and I never caught that. Uh, during the Guilty Remnant, there's also a thing. Uh, what was his name? An African-American guy, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head because I didn't write this down, and I should have. Wayne. And for some reason, that's a, a, another cult, and this Wayne guy can hug you and take his, the pain back uh, from you. Of whatever it is, you can get the pain back. And during it, he is impregnating all these Oriental women. And as he's impregnating them, they have to be taken care of by some boy. And the boy is Kevin's son. So at the end of season one, this black baby is left on Kevin's doorstep. 
the Nora Durst character is going to leave because now she's sat at a table, hold her kids' hands, and she's just done. She's broke, and she's going to leave, and she writes this letter, and it's all monologue, and she walks to his house to leave the letter to say goodbye to Kevin because now they're in a relationship, and bingo, bunga, bungo, she's holding a baby. He's got Jill because there's a huge scene I'm not going to talk about that's this epic of what the people do after they find those fake bodies in their house, which you can expect, and that's where we start season two, that they're raising this black baby. And there's all sorts of ramifications from that throughout the, the show, but <clears throat> very interesting, but I, I know I'm getting deep. And for those who never watched the show, they're like, what the frick is he talking about? So I want to play another sound bite. And this is Kevin Garvey. Um, the character that just is amazing in the show, I think. And uh, we're going to play that, do one little interview that we're going to talk over from Justice Thoreau, Justin Thoreau and then play an ending scene to the series and I will shut up about the leftovers. If I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed. Not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. If I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed. Not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. 
but he stands alone. And who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. And I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Skylar's lap and I was just asking her if this could all be over it was too hard it was I just wanted it stopped Skylar isn't that freezing ooh hey pool party what are you doing Skylar what is she doing Walt hey uh Hey, Scott, maybe it's time to get out now. What do you think? Skylar? Hank asked you a question. You need to get out. Skylar? She's going to come up, right? She has to. what you wanted from me, right? Used me to do your dirty work. That's not fair. Not fair? You want to know how many women I've slept with over the last ten years? Don't do that. Hundreds. Maybe more. I don't know. I barely see their faces. I married Wendy because I was lonely. Because I got tired of the endless disconnect. It was just a sad time out. Because when I'm inside someone, there's only one face I see. When you came home, it was like some kind of sign to me. Like my past coming around, giving me another shot to do this different. Better. Now that chance is running back to Chicago. Where's your folks? Gary. Parents, are they here? Where are they? That's my mother. That's your mama? Mm-hmm. Very nice, I want Take a good look at her. Because once you get on that bus, you ain't got no mama no more. You got your brothers on the team, and you got your daddy. Now, you know who your daddy is, don't you? Gary, if you want to play on this football team, you answer me when I ask you, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy, Gary? 
Who's your daddy? You. Uh-huh. And whose team is this? Is this your team? Or is this your daddy's team? Yours. Mm-hmm. Get on the bus. you in jail. I hate you. I hate us both. There was a moment, I know, when I, was, when I was under in the dark or something, whatever I'd been reduced to, you know, I, not even consciousness, it was a vague awareness in the dark. And I could, I could feel my definitions fading. And beneath that darkness, there was another kind. It was, it was, it was, it was deeper. Warm, like a substance. I could feel, man. I knew, I knew my daughter waited for me there. So clear. I could feel her. I could feel it. I could feel a piece of my, my, my pop, too. It was like I was, I was a part of everything that I ever loved. And we were all, the three of us just, just fading out. And all I had to do was let go. And I did. I said, darkness, yeah. And I disappeared. But I could, I could still feel her love there, even more than before. Nothing. Nothing but that love. to lose weight, to fit in a red dress. It's a reason to smile. 
It makes tomorrow all right. What have I got, Harry? Hmm? Why should I even make the bed or wash the dishes? I do them. But why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? I'm lonely. I'm old. You got friends, Ma? It's not the same. They don't need me. I like the way I feel. I like thinking about the red dress and the television and you and your father. Now when I get the sun, I smile. I'll come and visit, Ma. Look at you go! Does Harvey know about you and his little bunnies? Where are they? Killing is making a choice. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney. Or he's brushing by the beard. Uh, <laughs> you have nothing, nothing to threaten me with, nothing to do with all of your strength. Don't worry, I'm gonna tell you where they are. Both of them, and that's the point. You'll have to choose. He's at 250 52nd Street, and she's on Avenue X. You want to start again? This is my younger brother. I taught him everything he knows. I'm still his trainer. No, we got different styles. I'm fucking squirrely as fuck. You know, I'm I'm like, yeah, no, you know, yeah, I'm not even there. You know, it's what Sugar Ray said. I was the most uh, tricky fighter he'd ever come across. In 78, I fought Sugar Ray Leonard. I went toe to toe with him. He couldn't get to me. He couldn't get to me. He called me the pride, the pride of law. Everybody still talks about it, you know, especially my brother. His whole life he wanted to do what I did, you know, but we're very different fighters. And Mickey's, uh, you know, he's a heavy hitter. He's got fucking thunderous, I'm telling you, thunderous left punch. Mickey, he he gets in there, he takes a punishment. I don't know why he does it. But he's uh, right fucking in there. He likes getting on the inside, I stay on the outside. What's your name, love? Nora. Nora. Nora, I don't give a shit about you. I've already got your money, and I'm fucking exhausted. You've lost someone, yes? Someone's. And you believe that you will always feel that pain. And if it starts to slip away, you... You seek it out again, don't you? You won't let it kill you. And you won't kill yourself. 
for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Hope. It's your weakness. You want it gone because you don't deserve it. Do you deserve hope? I've seen my own death and it's coming upon me very soon. So this is your one chance, your only chance. And the question remains the same. Do you want to feel this way? Okay, so for one of these fandom sites, Justin Thoreau explains where we left. Ke- we leave Kevin on the leftovers. Series co-creator Dan and Lindenoff said the leftovers was in a way a story about Kevin and Nora's love. Did you do you see the show that way? I would characterize it in the same way. It's more of a love story told as it relates to a family in a way because essentially, with season ends. Each season ends in almost the exact same way on a certain level. In the first season, he comes home with a daughter after pulling her out of a burning building and finds Nora unexpectedly on his porch, having written him a goodbye note, and there's a baby there. You know, it's a family of sort, one that he wished for but didn't necessarily look like the one that he thought he was going to get. And I never caught that till I read this article, which surprised me. Not only, uh, next question was, not only does Kevin cut out this whole part of his past history with Nora when he reunites with her, but the way you play it, he's a completely different guy. He doesn't even seem like the same person. He's happy. I mean, he's happy but missing this one piece. If there's any cruelty to what he's been living with, it's that he's been living with essentially his entire family minus this one piece. Part of that was a result of choices he made. So on the one hand, I think he's he'd be happy to take up a script and staff and go to Australia every year and keep looking for her. Because <clears throat> it does seem, there's a powerful scene. Well, I'll just read it. I think I catch this on the back side um, of the show now because th- this was in it was episode nine of season one that Garvey's at their best. And Kevin says, I think there's something wrong with me. And his father, who's crazy through most of the show, but you get to see this one episode where he's not. Because every man rebels against the idea that this is 
fucking it. Fights windmills, saves fucking damsels, all in search of greater purpose. You have no greater purpose because it is enough. And that hit me at the time because I was going through some serious depression. I remember seeing it. I went, holy shit. Okay, that makes sense. And and it's a true statement because um, if you look at your life as a male, you do keep saying as you grow older, I mean, this can't be fucking it. I'm just going to work and my kids are going to shit on me and I'm going to lose all my fucking hair and blah, 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 blah. And it's like you're looking for something until you get into like your late 40s and all of a sudden I don't give a fuck anymore. Okay, this is me. This is life. I'm happy with it. And the occasional weekends where I hang with my wife, do a podcast and have a barbecue. Hey, fuck, I'm happy. Um, but it takes you a while to get there. So that kind of was impactful. All right, another question. He's so much more relaxed. Watching Kevin, usually you feel like you need to hold your breath a little bit. This version of him is like, oh, you can exhale. Yeah, exactly. I think that's by design in the writing. You don't want to feel like he's going to see Patty over his shoulder again. You want him to relax. But I don't think he's actually acting relaxed to try to win her back. He really genuinely is more realized person and has learned how to force things, not to force things anymore. The show doesn't say how far in time we've jumped ahead, but obviously they did a little bit of work and... They they don't give you a timeline, so they didn't make him look older. Next question, the scene where you and Nora sit down and have a tea and have this long conversation, was that the last scene you shot? No, the last scene that I shot was very close to the end, maybe the second or third to the last day. The last scene that I shot, interestingly, was in the bathtub. And that was really interesting because that's the opening scene of the final episode. Um, they're in a bathtub talking about the future. Something I wish me and my wife could do, but we have a house with a really small bathtub, so it's not happening. Next question, I'll ask you about the first then. When you were done shooting, was that an emotional moment for you? Yes. It's one of those things when you're at the end of any season, forgetting the final season, basically every piece of toothpaste has been pushed to the end of the tube, and you're exhausted and tired. It was emotional in that. I think it hit me later as I was packing up my trailer. I had to leave the very next day. I don't like to get emotional in front of people, so I think I shed a few tears there, and also with some quiet goodbyes to Mimi and Carrie Coon. It was, I was making an assumption that the T scene might have been your last scene because it felt like maybe real emotion was entering in it. Obviously, that was just motivated by the material. The material itself and also I always relished working on this show. There were no moments where I was like, God, get me off this thing. I'm sick of it. I knew how special this thing we were making was and I felt it was special. That being said, when you know you're in your final couple weeks, the final couple days, that feeling becomes more piquant. I don't even know what that word is. I'll have to look it up. In that scene, we also know the gravity of that day where I came back, slammed the door, get up, yell at her, get upset, and then have to deliver that monologue. You realize this is landing you have to stick. Damon had always said we're never going to answer what happened to the depart on the show, but the show did. The monologue explained it. Yeah, if you believe it. Do you think we should believe it? If you believe her, you know it operates on two levels. Yes, this that... This thing happened, and that's where they all went. And there's another world where there's the 2%. It also operates on the level, this is the story I tell myself, and this is the story I'll tell you, or this is the story I tell everyone, or this is the story I will tell those who listen. I thought that was very interesting because when we really look at it, and this is why this show is so deep, we all have versions of things that we truly believe. But if we could watch a video, that's not what happened. But it's what we say, and in some deep levels where it's very sad or 
bad, we make a version to make us be able to handle it. That raises another question. This episode, because it cuts from Nora's immersion in the water to the blue sky of Australia, part of me initially wondered, is that is what we're seeing of her life in the future real, or are they in heaven or something? He didn't answer that question. That was ultimately my takeaway, too. I wonder, though, if some people will have that question. The great That's great if they do. The wonderful thing, and that's what our show does not cleverly but well, meaning not in a cynical way, is that it allows for multiple interpretations, just like life does. It's true. You did three seasons, and that's it. But if HBO had said, actually, let's do a fourth, would you have wanted to do one? It's hard to say. Damon was always very upfront about, we're not doing eight seasons of the show. We're not even doing five. At the outset, before we even shot the pilot, in order to put my mind at ease, he said, look, because I was sort of reluctant about doing a television show, just because you get locked up for an enormous period of time, he said, this will be three or four seasons max. He's like, that's the amount of time I think it's going to need to tell this story without beating it to death. As I've said before, I feel like he and Tom put the last stroke on the painting and went, you know what? This is the time to walk away and we're done. Which, we're not happy. It feels like it ended the way it should. No, it didn't. And the show has been airing opposite Twin Peaks. I know the original Twin Peaks had big impact on, Lin- on Lindoff. They try to convert on how it's the same. It's not even. Um, and then they ask him some more questions and I'll stop. Um, okay, and, and then there's one last scene. Because uh, this is how deep the show is. And it's from Cairo Season uh, 1, Episode 8. And there's a poem from Yates that's in there that I thought was super powerful. Um, Michael Roberts bids his beloved be at peace. Hear the shadowy horses, their long manes shake, their hooves heavy heavy with tumlet, their eyes glimmering white, the north unfolds above them clinging, creeping night, the east are hidden joy before the morning breaks, the west weeps in pale dew and sighs passing away, the south is pouring down roses of crimson fire, O vanity of sleep, hope, dream, endless desire. The horses of disaster plunge in the heavy clay. Beloved, let your eyes half close and your heart beat over my heart and your hair fall over my breast. Drowning love's lonely hour in deep twilight of rest and hiding their tossing manes and their tumultuous feet. That's some deep ass shit. And that's the point and why I covered it. This is the deepest shit I've ever watched. Not on a matrix deep, but on an emotional, the life experience deep. And I recommend every one of you watch it. So, going to leave with the final scene, a music break, and news of social media. Nuggets!
it help if I close my eyes? Did it help if I say I deserve it? That's not true. Yes, it is. I talk too much. I don't listen. I'm stupid. I'm worthless. I'm a fat pig. I don't know how to be happy. Please stop. You know, I'm trying not to put too much expectation on what people are supposed to think and feel and respond to it. I just, more than anything else, if, if I'm chasing, you know, an adjective, uh, it would be satisfying. It's not about whether the world is going to end or not. It's about what do we do now that the world hasn't ended. And therefore, there has to be an entire episode set in that space of what do we do now. It's, it's very hard to remember what I was experiencing the night of the Lost finale. Um, I was definitely very much still caught up in the experience of making the show because we had just finished shooting it probably like two weeks before it aired. And I watched it in a room full of like several hundred other people. And I remember feeling very self-conscious and very aware of how everybody else was processing it versus what, how I was processing it. And then, and then it was over. And then I think the next day I left for Italy with my family because Carlton and I had announced that we just wanted to go radio silent and let things soak in. Even when we got back from Italy a month later, the Emmy nominations came out and Lost was nominated for a drama series and the finale was nominated for writing. It was only, you know, a couple weeks later that I began to become profoundly aware of the fact that there was some divisiveness uh, around that idea. Now uh, I kind of feel like I really want to be engaged in talking about the show. Ta-da. Not that I want to deconstruct or demystify any of the purposeful ambiguity that's in the design of the show, but at the same time, I don't want there to be any perception that I was hiding um, and that I, I've been relatively transparent and open and honest for as long as the show has been on, and I want that to continue in the afterlife of the show. Um, no pun intended. The show should not be judged solely by its finale, but you have to say the finale counts for a disproportionate amount of of points in the in the essay writing competition. So I get that it's a big deal, and particularly for shows that run on a serialized engine or are building towards some sort of dramatic resolution, the resolution actually really matters. It's much easier to blow the ending than it is to stick the landing. That said, so many of the shows that I love that are in my pantheon of, of favorite television shows, probably The Wire most notably, um, and maybe even Breaking Bad, People are able to talk about those shows as genius, brilliant um, pantheon shows 
uh, and we'll say they're the greatest shows of all time, but they, the finale isn't even part of their conversation. I think that the standout finale for me of all time, although The Sopranos is right up there for the obvious reasons, which is people are still talking about it, and I just think that the way that it ended was just bold and incredible and artistic and, um, and profound and everything that The Sopranos was. But the MASH finale is the one that really imprinted on me. I remember watching it with my parents. I just remember having watched MASH and not a lot of it going over my head because I was young, but thinking that it was a comedy. And then that finale was just so profoundly sad and upsetting. Hawkeye is in a mental institution. I, I just wanted to be quiet. It was a baby. And then the final helicopter shot uh, lifting off. I just felt like it was the perfect um, uh, uh, way of having the narrative combined with the way that we were feeling about things. And then there were these kind of unexpected, tear-jerking wrinkles thrown in, like Klinger deciding to stay, that felt like, oh my God, I never could have guessed that that would happen in a billion years, but it's so much the right idea. Mm -hmm. So thinking about every single character and giving them each their little grace note and moment, I think is, is super important. I'm trying to let go of, of how I want people to react to it, and I'm also trying to let go of this sort of very simple um, construct of it was good, it was bad, and I'm more sort of chasing or focused on like what is the emotional experience that people are going to have, and being able to separate this is the emotional experience and I'm having as a result of watching what's on the screen versus this is the emotional experience that I'm having because the show is ending. And in a perfect world, those two things are gonna be um, the same thing, you know, because I think that we, we, are, we are sort of chasing this, the same emotional idea of all the things that you feel about something leaving you uh, feel like they run parallel to a lot of the ideas in the, uh, in the finale. Let's go watch. The entire series has been about watching people uh, struggle and suffer to come up with a belief system and a way of living their lives where they feel safe and secure and loved versus um, unsafe, terrified, and unloved. And so I wanted the final episode of the show to be a microcosm of all those ideas. So it meant that we were going to have to show the characters suffer a little bit, but hopefully achieve some level of grace, where when it ends you feel, oh, I understand the journey that they went on, why they went on it, and what they got at the end of it. For three seasons, fans of the critically acclaimed series The Leftovers have watched with bated breath. Tonight, the star, Justin Thoreau, reveals details about the spellbinding series on the eve of its highly anticipated finale. Here's ABC's Nick Watt. Here's the leftovers elevator pitch. In an instant, 2% of the Earth's population just vanishes. Massive. Mournful. Sam? Sam? The show follows those left behind. There's Justin Thoreau as a police chief. That 2% of the population disappearing is just the landscape that we start yeah. with um, or the springboard for everything else. Thoreau we've seen before in The Girl on the Train. Hey, Tom. Hey, Megan. Mulholland Drive. Where's this going? What do you want me to do? 
and with his now wife Jennifer Aniston in Wanderlust. Feel like a schoolgirl. Damon Lindelof is co-creator of The Leftovers. Previously, the co-creator of Lost. The Leftovers also stars Carrie Coon. My kids are not dead. They are gone. They are just gone. Then you should go be with them. She lost her whole family and now works as a government investigator into the disappearance. Did you understand what was going on as you were shooting? <laughs> um, yes and no. Nora is still mysterious to me. No. No. Stop! I can't go to bed for like four hours after I watch it because you're making me think too much. Oh, good. Talking possible appending apocalypse with some sweeteners thrown in. Every now and again, you get your bum out to try and make people feel happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, that's exactly. And, and look, also that. You know, it was also just like not enough of Justin's <laughs> naked rear end. I mean, why not? If you got it, they're going to take advantage. It is Hollywood, after all. I think we did see it a couple times. I remember us cutting bum scenes at some at one point. There can be too much bum. I, don't really I think you have to find the bad. right yeah. the right balance. <laughs> Can there be too much of Thoreau in the nip? We got the keys to your car. Jimmy Kimmel pulled a prank on Justin during his show recently. <laughs> it's easy to write him off because he's yeah. too pretty. Yeah, I think a lot of people get judged that way. It happens to actresses all the time. But I think Justin at heart is a character actor. Thoreau, by the way, appears to be immortal. There are some heavy religious overtones. The whole Justin Jesus thing is... Well, look at the guy. Yes. Right. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What? Or not religious? I just don't know. We originally wrote Kevin as a very angry guy. And when Justin started playing him, I was sort of like, Justin Thoreau doesn't strike me as being very angry. And so we course corrected as writers. He became more vulnerable, nuanced in one scene asphyxiation. It was so terrifying the first time he did it. They wanted to give him a escape patch, but he said, no, no, I'll do it. He just did it. I got to do sort of everything, you know. I mean, there was never an episode where I really got to sort of stand down or put it in neutral right. or, or coast. I mean, we're talking about it almost as if it's a grueling watch, which it's not. I mean, it's engrossing. You know, people, you know, want to relate to a number of subjects, you know, grief, sadness, whatever, because it, it, in some way, that sort of storytelling sort of illuminates other parts of your own life. The reason why it's compelling is it can be cathartic, you know, at times. Um, and those little moments of earned happiness in our show reflect that as well. It's mind-expanding, thought-provoking entertainment. Nearly all now, they're ready to be binged on HBO. You can knock that off in a weekend. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it yeah. because you'll be, you'll be suicidal. Hang on, um, don't binge? We should be responsible uh, uh, doctors and say, here's the prescription. You know, uh, I would take two of these at a time, then let a day or two go by, and then you can take two more. <laughs> Does the name Kevin mean anything to you? The Leftovers cult following in tow is now coming towards the end of its third and final season. No. We're not going to be one of those shows that's in year eight trying to right. like, ring some storyline out of it. There's a wacky cousin. There's a wacky cousin. Yeah. Just spin off. I feel that this is a show that will be, I think people will pay attention to it, and I think history will be very kind to the show. Seems like quite a kind of grand statement it to does. make, but... I mean television history, can I be clear? So what does happen in the end? It was unexpected. If you're a super religious person watching The Leftovers 
and you're an atheist watching The Leftovers, you're going to have a very different takeaway from the final episode of the show. Remember, Lindelof was also responsible for Lost, and that show's finale upset some fans who thought it was anticlimactic and failed to answer many of the show's long-running mysteries. Some people got annoyed with you by the ending. It's a much different show than Lost. Lost did promise resolution. I believe we gave those answers. It doesn't mean that people liked them, but I don't think that it's a fair criticism that we didn't give them. I mean, is it all going to be... It's not all going to be neatly wrapped up for us by the end. Much like life, things don't wrap up in the ways yeah. that you expect them to. But it, for me, it was enormously gratifying to sort of see the way the, where they sort of chose to put the last stroke on the painting. And do we get an answer to why you don't die? Uh, uh, I don't want to answer that question. Yeah, I don't want to answer that either. Yeah, yeah. A deep dive on those left behind. If the people that you love suddenly disappeared in an instant from you, would you ever be capable of forming a real connection with another person again, knowing they could be gone in an instant, yet we do it over and over and over and over again? That is the meaning of life, which is like we walk right into the buzzsaw over and over again. <laughs> if everybody loves the Leftovers finale and if there's universal acclaim, then I'm not entirely sure that we've done our jobs right. There'll definitely be discussion about it, um, but I, you know, I'd, I'd much rather have that than, uh, you know, than just sort of like, oh, that was pleasant. How long does this usually take to this? Pleasant is not a word I would ever use for the leftovers. I'm Nick Watt for Nightline in Los Angeles. The Leftovers series finale airs Sunday night on HBO. Let's go watch. We're obsessed with this idea of, like, what would happen if the world ends? Something that's always really interesting to people. But there's this even more interesting idea behind it, which is, what do you do when the apocalypse doesn't happen? When you were sort of anticipating the world to end, then nothing happens. When we brought the writers together to start talking about what the final season of the show is going to be, we felt like it was probably best to start with the very end. What's the last scene of the series going to be? We landed on an idea that excited all of us. We lost some of them. But over there, they lost all of us. We took our most skeptical character and put her in a place where she tells a story that offers an explanation. Most of the characters on the show are suffering. The satisfying resolution to the show, I think, is, is there a way for the characters that we care about to find a way to find peace? Maybe the answer to that question is, there isn't. The third season, more than the previous two seasons, starts to push the characters in a direction where they're no longer satisfied with just sitting back and not trying to answer that question for themselves. You're going to have to hold me down. What am I supposed to do with my life? What does this mean? And more importantly, how can I feel safe? Because if any time this could happen again, the people that you love could just be gone. Now what? We always knew that the sudden departure created this vacuum that people had to fill with ideas, theories, stories. The whole show is about the lack of an explanation and what that forces people to do to live with themselves and to live with each other. I don't understand what's happening. 
It's about the belief systems that people create to give their life some form of structure. Are you scared? I have never felt so alive. I think it's a show that fundamentally attacks like the meaning of life. I'm not scared either. There's powerlessness and mystery every day. We don't think about it all the time until we're challenged. Our characters are constantly evolving, and that to me is a really moving and beautiful part of the show. I think that we find each character on the show that we care about in very specific pursuit of the answer to a personal mystery, somewhat related to the departure itself, but I think that we resolve those mysteries in the series and we leave the grander mystery unanswered. A satisfying ending on The Leftovers feels to me like it is release from suffering. It also seems true and authentic that the way that we find release from suffering is through community, through family, through love. Is at times joyous and at times extremely uncomfortable. I think that's the stuff that Damon loves to play in, that kind of discomfort. The Leftovers is not about telling people how to live their lives. It's about watching people who don't know how to live their lives, looking for some level of fundamental guidance and maybe finding it through one another. Did I think about you? Did I want to call you? Did I want to be with you, Kevin? Of course I did. But so much time had passed. It was too late. And I knew that if I told you what happened, that you would never believe me. I believe you. You do? Why wouldn't I believe you? You're here. I'm here. 
poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Stop. Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. No military corner, and I know this is a long podcast because of the Comey and the leftovers, a lot of uh, sound bites, but I really wanted to pay justice to this show, so I'll try to speed this one up. Amazon is discounting its Prime subscription for SNAP recipients. That's true. I, I, what? Earlier this week, Amazon announced a Prime, a brand new version of the Prime service geared towards low-income customers or people on government assistance. The move, according to analysts, is aimed at taking on Walmart's low-income shoppers. On Tuesday, Amazon dropped a press release explaining its cutting-edge new Prime service, now offering a discount for anyone living off government benefits. The Prime service, which offers benefits like free two-day shipping and online music and video streaming, typically costs $10.99 a month or $9.99 a year. But under Amazon's new policy, anyone with a state-issued EBT card will have access with a discount for $5.99 a month. Why? That was a pause for effect. Why? Why, when you're on Snap, do you need Amazon Prime? And why is the government authorizing Amazon Prime? Snaps for food. It can't be cheaper to go to Amazon for food. Our country's fucking crazy. 200 new models are taking over Times Square and they already did it. It was a non-profit human connection arts and holding a public art project called Body Notes. Okay. Faking wokeness, how advertising targets millennial liberals for profit. Eco-warriors are celebrating in one video and another a message flashed across the screen. We believe no matter who you are, where you're from, who you love, or who you worship, we all belong. Yet another ad champions the theme of girls in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Education that celebrates a girl-centered technology organization. Despite all appearances, these videos are not public service campaigns. Instead, they are advertisements for some of the most blockbuster brands around. For the car company Kia, Airbnb, or for phone carrier Verizon, whose ad campaigns involve partnering with girls who code. These companies are now gesturing at liberal values 
through their messaging if television is waking up politically with shows such as The Handmaid's Tale, advertisements seem to be far ahead. Why is this the case? For starters, advertisers are constantly looking for future markets and younger Americans are essentially more liberal than their parents. Brand loyalty starts in the cradle and ends in the grave. And so now they're just going full-fledged. This is a huge article that just covers all these different brands that are pushing liberal ideals. And I once again say, does everything have to be political? Everything has to be political, right? We can't just show Tony the fucking tiger to sell cornflakes. We're going to show Tony the freaking tiger saving the rainforest, eating a bowl of cornflakes. Okay. Indie Muslim calls out creators of the local billboard that insults the prophet. An anti-Muslim billboard disparaging the prophet Muhammad that can be seen from southbound lanes of I-465 on the east side is drawing concern from local Muslims. Now Islamic leaders in Indianapolis are challenging those responsible for what they say are offensive and untrue statements to stand by their words, shed their anonymity, and explain their motives. It's a horrible billboard. I'm outraged! This kind of rhetoric just further divisions our state and makes a neighbor question a neighbor, just like I am today. Well, then tell the rest of your religion to stop killing people. It's discrimination. Gay Trump supporter says his vote got him barred from gay parade. When he closed his eyes, Brian Talbert could see each detail of the float he had planned to build. It was going to be 27 feet long, a bunch of American flags, a replica of the Statue of Liberty, female impersonators, and the most patriotic music anyone has ever heard. The design would be so powerful, Talbert said, that nobody at the 2017 Charlotte Gay Parade would ever forget it. I know it's a pride parade, but I call it the gay parade. You're going to look at this float and say blah, blah, blah. Not appears Talbert, a fervent and openly gay supporter of Trump, a member of a group called Deplorable Pride, will not get to ride his float through downtown Charlotte in August. Charlotte Pride, one of the largest pride organizations in the southeastern United States, has rejected deplorables. Talbert said the application was denied because he's an outspoken Trump supporter and that Charlotte Pride accused him of being anti-gay. Once again, if you don't believe all the diatribe, you can't be on our team. Like this, where's the feminist outrage? Biologically male transgender high school sprinter beats girls at state. Doesn't even look remotely female. Transgender sprinter Andrea Yearwood, a freshman who was born a male, won the girls 100 meter and 200 meter dash at the Connecticut High School Class M State Championship. Victories that didn't come with... Out some controversy. Feels really good. Really happy to win both titles. Your word of Cromwell High School till the day after winning at the May 30th meet. Kind of expected it. I've always gotten first. I expected it to be the same thing. Your word's dad isn't too worried about it either. Saying, as her father, I never think about it as competition. This is not about winning and losing. This is about the health of my teenage daughter. In terms of fairness aspect, I don't think about that as a father. I only think about it as my daughter, happy, wealthy, and able to participate in what she wants to do. It's great that she's supportive of Andrea, but how is this ultimately helpful to anyone? The odds are inherently stacked against Andrea's competitors. And going forward, Andrea won't ever 
have to experience fair competition. As for Andrea Yearwood's first place finish times in the girl races, the day reported that Yearwood ran the 112.66 and the 226. According to the Northwest Times Sporting Time, the last place times in the boys' 100-meter and 1,200-meter class were 11.7 and 25.5. The last place... He can't win in the boys, so now he's playing. He's a girl. I, I, you know, I don't give a fuck because you know my theory and do you, but where are the feminists? Because it's not going to stop. And we've shown how they had a problem with the gay or the trans, trans women on the women's march stuff, which have you noticed the women's march shit just went away? Guess they ran out of steam. Gay media promotes eight-year-old drag queen. This was on the internet. That's why we have this nugget section. The new rising star in gay community is an eight-year-old drag queen called Latisha, I think. Or is it Latisha? Lactasia. Lactatia. I don't freaking know. Backed by his parents, Lactatia, whose real name is Nemus Quinn Melonkin Golden, Started performing drag at the age of seven in an interview with LGBT in the city. Like Tasha explains, 14-year-old sister Kashimur Luna Higgins came up with his drag name. My sister made it up, and we all thought it was really funny. According to the statement provided by Best Kept Montreal, like Tasha's parents revealed their son's biggest milestone was when he said he wanted to be a girl with a penis. Mm. Wow. PETA! Latest outrage campaign is pinned to a fake animal abuse video. PETA has hit a breathtaking new low. The animal rights group has produced a disturbing new video that depicts a cat suffering at the hands of its owner. It's difficult to watch. It's also completely fake, but it looks real. It is skilled CGI work clearly meant to deceive viewers. Now PETA is trying to enlist complicit media organizations to knowingly publish the fake video in an effort to make the lie go viral. Press Kitchen, a PR agency, approached Mashable via email with the story late last week, completely unprompted, and we initially ignored the pitch. The agency pitched the idea in two additional emails. Now, given the nature of the effort and the scourge of misinformation in 2017, combined with the fact that the video is truly bizarre and gross, we're making this fake campaign public. Hmm. Wow. Podcaster. This one's pretty bad. West Coast host West, a guy named West, co-host a podcast. Oh, it's a woman. Co-host a podcast, The Read. In her own words, she goes on TV occasionally to vent about race relations and racial identity in American culture without using too many big words. But don't worry, for those of you not fortunate enough to have listened to the read or caught one of her TV appearances, she also has a Twitter account she can use to dish out brilliance. Here's deep thought. King Crystal, I spend way too much time fantasizing about how much better the U.S. and the U.K. would be if white people couldn't vote. Her podcast will blow up now. Maybe I need to do that. Just tweet crazy shit. Racist shit. And people will listen to my podcast. Hmm. 
Check Gyro Drive beats flying cars for hybrid licenses. Global automakers compete to bring the first flying car to market. Check pilot Pavel Brenzinia is trying a different track. Instead of creating a car that flies, he has made a gyro drive, a mini helicopter you can drive. The engineer and owner of Nirvana Systems, a company producing motors for small flying machines, insists his vehicle is the first in the world authorized to operate both on road and in the air. It's really cool. The little helicopter. The two-seat gyro drive has a maximum driving speed of 40 kilometers per hour and can take its crew of two on a short drive to a petrol station or a hotel. It needs less than 100 meters or 110 yards to take off and reaches a top speed of 180 kilometers per hour in the air and flies for 600 kilometers. After landing, the pilot only has to fix the main rotor blades along the axis of gyro drive and pull out a built-in license plate to transform it into a road vehicle. It costs 1.5 million karuna, or $63,500. My Jeep costs 49000 God, I wasted my money. I could have a gyro helicopter thing. That'd be freaking awesome! Just drive it out to the end of the road, get on the highway, and go, uh, see ya! Chinese skyscraper visitor hits record-breaking 47 miles per hour. What are they talking about? An elevator! The ultra-high-speed elevator was developed by a Japanese tech company. The elevator is located in the CTF Finance Center in Ganguza, China. Its safety features include a brake equipment and made of heat-resistant material and ear pressure adjustment technology to ease ear blockage because you're going so freaking fast up. I don't know if I want to go in an elevator that goes 47 miles an hour. This one is sad and crazy. San Jose resident flung from golf cart dies after falling on wine glass. A 58-year-old San Jose resident died on Friday after being flung from a golf cart and falling on a shards of two wine glasses she was holding. What a shitty way to go. Wow. That's horrible. Mm. We've covered on our show Lauren Duca a lot. She's a hateful, hateful feminist Hillary shill. Well... Clinton penned supportive letter to Journo who told Trump to eat shit. Former Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton wrote a letter praising the courage and poise of Teen Vogue writer who told President Trump to eat shit. On Friday, Teen Vogue writer Lauren Duca, who rose to fame after penning a piece accusing Trump of gaslighting America, took to Twitter to share a letter she received from one of her political idols. Dear Lauren, I read the New York Times piece about you back in January. I wanted to write to thank you for your excellent work on Team Vogue and the courage and poise you have shown in recent months. As we know all too well, the Internet is not a friendly place for women, especially those who aren't afraid to speak their minds and challenge establishment systems of power. And so I applaud you and hope you will continue writing and speaking out. Your voice is so important. With best wishes and warm regards, I'm sincerely yours. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hmm. Her tweets eat shit. To be clear, feces. Cute pic of Trump getting tired of winning and it shows an airplane crashing. Yeah, that's the Lauren Duca we're talking about. I just want you to know that that is so 
fucking wrong on so many levels. And if a republic, if, if Mitt Romney would have wrote letters to everybody that said Obama wasn't an American and Obama is a Muslim, do you think it would have made your paper? Ooh, fucking yeah, would have. There's another f bomb. Sorry. All right, a lighter fair. Native American senator honored with her own action figure to punch out Donald Trump. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has claimed in the past to be a Native American descendant, even though she, there's no evidence of it, has her own action figure now. It shows a picture of Warren. The Hill covered it. And everybody had some fun with it. There's a picture of her with a Indian headdress and a tomahawk. It also shows her in a Barbie teepee. <laughs> and they even had a video, a Kickstarter, showing... Her punching out a Donald Trump doll. And of course, conservatives then posted pictures of Hillary and Bernie holding hands next to piles of money. Awesome. Then we have this one, Kurt Eichenwald. Newsweek writer forgets to close porn tab before posting image on Twitter. With anime porn, wild anime porn, otherwise known as hienta, has been pegged by some as fetish of the alt-right, it appears that even liberal journalists get curious enough to observe the artistry of tentacle porn. I don't even know what that is. Senior Newsweek writer Kirk Eichenwald, who recently made headlines after he filed charges against an anonymous Twitter troll who allegedly gave him a seizure by sending him a flashing gift, posted an image of an anti-Semitic newsletter he reportedly received. However, Twitter users noticed that on the browser in the background of Eichenwald's picture, there was an open tab for b dash Chiku in English and uncensored. Hours after Twitter years noticed the porn tab, Eichenwald decided to blame his wife and his children for the mishap. According to Eichenwald, he was trying to convince his wife that tentacle porn exists. Sign on. Okay, I'm a dumbass. Believe it or not, my kids and I were trying to convince my wife that tentacle porn existed. Some to show her it was real, but I couldn't find any, and ended up with this. My family reads my Twitter feed, say, no, this is true. I can also pull the whole, who are you to judge card by asking a completely rhetorical question. What difference would it make over whether he was actually enjoying the porn? What difference would it make? Seriously, why I don't see an appeal of cartoon porn, P-A-R-N, Porn is a multi-billion dollar industry. People obviously look at it. No one hacked my account. We're searching to prove to my wife tentacle porn exists. See, text convo. I only remove names and drug names. And one last desperate attempt to explain the porn, Eichenwald took on a tone of indifference and told readers to believe what I say or don't. Despite devoting multiple tweets to denying he was looking at porn and throwing blame on his family members. According to Gizmod analysis of the pornographic website, there is no tentacle porn on the site. Rather, the tags the site include things such as dark skin glasses, schoolboy uniform, and other NSFW language. To make the story even better, just recently, Eichenwald posted a warning to red sites. Mega ISPs will have right to sell your browsing history to marketers. Red state porn watcher, this means you. So when he's caught looking at porn... He then blames Trump supporters. And being that he's a hateful, hateful troll, somehow that totally makes sense to me. And our last 
Doggone Lighter Fair is a review in a new source for the left. I'm not going to say the name of it because I don't want to spread any more alt-left websites. Review, you probably shouldn't eat a Chick-fil-A. I'm just going to read the opening sentence. People love Chick-fil-A, a poultry-centric fast food chain whose corporate's purpose is to glorify God and whose strict Sunday closure means that every employee gets at least one day of rest. This is a review that's supposed to be on a news source now, but the entire review is based on lefty ideology and clearly blatantly political because they don't like the chain. They could be serving nirvana. They wouldn't like it because the fact of the matter is they're religious and they didn't believe in gay marriage. And I thought it was just hilarious. We're still dogging chicken fuckers, as I call it, because they don't believe in your gay marriage stuff. Does it matter anymore? Gay marriage is the law of the land. Why do you care? That was so 2015. So this wraps up a very long episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please feel free to share this with your family and friends and send comments about the track by sending an email to foppodcast at gmail.com. Foppodcast gmail.com. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Flyover Politic webpage for, at foppodcast.com, F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com to see links to feeds for the show, links to our Facebook page, and email us. There also see links to every episode on the episode release page and my blog. And of course, there you can send me suggestions for the show. Next podcast will be on Friday. I believe that's the 16th year of our Lord, June 2017. I know this is kind of a hybrid, once again, but I wanted to cover the leftovers because, like I said, I love the show, and I had to hit the Comey trial, so excuse the three hours of length, but there was a lot of sound bites that went with that, And but you can give me credit. I didn't play any of the Comey hearing. I went to do it, and I go, you know, every show I do that, but by the time the people hear my show, it's already past the point. You've had your TV just jam every news bite they can get to support the left on your neck. So what's the point in listening? I hope you all have a fantastic week this week. Take care of your family and friends. Love each other. And I will talk to you next Friday. Thank you all for listening. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor.